This episode is powered by TrackMan Golf. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Aerotech Golf Shafts. With more Pro Tour wins than any other graphite iron shaft in history, steel fiber golf shafts by Aerotech Golf are a true game changer. Aerotech's innovative designs and unique material engineering help players sharpen their game while reducing fatigue and injury. This podcast is also brought to you by Super Speed Golf. Would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther? With the Super Speed Golf training system, this can become a reality. Super Speed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Use the code SHKEEN, S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the How's My Hand Path podcast. This week, we have a really special announcement. We have a new host joining us on the show. Uh, lots of you people out there have seen him with Shaheen on Course Kings in the past and uh, currently still there, Preston Combs. Hey, guys, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is going to be some fun stuff here. Yeah, excited to be a new host. I think it's good that we have, I think, a third voice for us to kind of like circulate the dynamic and have different conversations. In the past, it's always been me and Shaheen, and I think moving forward, it'll be good to have like a third perspective. A left-handed perspective. A left-handed perspective, exactly. So I think maybe the only one in this group. Yeah, yeah. I think before we jump into our interview, we should talk about a few things. Um, You guys kind of threw a bunch of questions out there to social media and see what people wanted us to talk about. So, uh, Shane, why don't you get it started? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to congratulate Preston on winning or winning, being nominated for the uh, Best Young Teachers list from Golf Digest. Congratulations. Uh, Preston, that's the only reason you were asked to be a host with us. If not, (laughs) you were out. Um, (laughs) And uh, I'm obviously joking. And uh, yeah, dude, so talk about that. I mean, this is, is this your first time being on the list? I really don't keep track because in Canada, it's like, you know, we're not really nominated and we're going to get into that stuff. But um, yeah, I, I want to know, like, from your perspective, how, how's, how's it feel for that? Yeah, first, first time on the list, I think for the magazine publications and their list is voted in by their peers and the board that's doing the selection really just awesome to receive that type of recognition that on the strength of people that I've worked with and an Instagram account with here's some before and afters of sharing some good information people think that there's enough there to say hey you're part of the part of the club part of the group uh knocked on the door before in years past and nice to see that there's enough in the time that I've invested in furthering my knowledge and trying to grow a career in a business that there's a there's enough there to say, hey, we'd like to have you as uh, part of this award. I want to uh, kind of dive into awards and stuff a little bit more uh, because obviously there's a couple of things that uh, we had spoken about before starting this regarding uh, just the PGA program, uh, regarding just instruction as a whole. You know, First of all, let's all realize that there are amazing instructors out there who are not PGA certified, like outside of myself, which I'm also not a PGA member for the listeners. Um, you know, outside of myself, there are plenty of other coaches like Jeff Smith, if I'm not mistaken, also not a PGA member, Andrew Rice, another great coach, also not a PGA member, like the list can go on and on. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about was not just like 
not how not being a PGA member is very difficult to coach in, in the, in North America specifically, because everybody kind of almost requires it if you want to start coaching somewhere, but also, uh, golf in Canada specifically, like if you're not a PGA member in Canada, forget it. You're going to have no eyes on you from the PGA of Canada over here in Quebec. The association is very small, but even then they're not going to look at you. And so like for a coach like myself, for example, this was like a heated topic, just, you know, after Darren Clark won his champions tour event last week, shout out self pat on the back. Um, DC, DC, um, that was really fun. And obviously, you know, it's an honor for me to work with a legend like that. And I'm really happy that obviously we saw some immediate success happen right away with him winning two events in a row and all that. But, um, you know, golf, um, golf channel posted an article and the entire article was about how Darren's working with a new coach and not once in the entire article, did they mention my name in that whole thing? And for me, I'm at the stage of my, of my career. Now I would like to think at least that like, I don't necessarily need to have that extra publicity because we're plenty busy enough and things are going really well and we're working with these tour players and all that. But at the same time, I, I found it kind of ironic how like the basis of your entire article is the fact that he's working with a new coach and you never once named the person, like whether it's me, whether it's Jeff, whether it's you, Preston or whoever, you know, and I found that kind of to be consistent with even what happens in Canada, like Golf Canada posted about uh, Darren Clark winning the event no mention of the fact that his coach is Canadian, by the way, PG of Canada, no mention of the fact that the coach is Canadian, you know, working with a player who's winning events. And so I find that when you're not associated to the PGA, you're almost overlooked in a lot of ways. Um, and we see that a lot with these like teacher lists as well. You know, it's very specific to, if you're a PGA member, these are all the awards in the world. Now, if you're not a PGA member and your players are winning tournaments everywhere, well, good luck to you because it doesn't, it doesn't matter to us. And, you know, I, I don't want this to come across as negative or, or, or anything like that because, like, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy that I still have some amazing publicity everywhere and, and I still get to work with these players. So it's not about that. It's more so, like, taking myself out of the equation. If someone was in a similar situation who's not a PGA member, and who's trying to grow their their kind of program and their following and all that, you know, it's unfortunate that people like that are completely overlooked in the golf instruction world just because of the fact that they don't have a PGA attachment to their name. So uh, I wanted to know what, like, Brandon, obviously what you think, and Preston, you specifically, because, you know, you coach the game like I do. Um, and I'm sure you have some thoughts to that as well. Right. So when you look at a situation like this, I mean, let's just draw some parallels for the audience here. Anyone listening in, this is basically the equivalent of saying the Mets new third baseman just hit the game winning home run and never mentioning his name, right? We've got, here's somebody that's a part of the team, a part of the organization, and we're just going to leave this generic tag for he was an instrumental in the win here and not highlighting that, okay, well, who was it? We'd like to know that. So I think as we look across the industry, there are so many instances of we would do something in one scenario, whether it be on the business front, on the media front, and then you get into the golf world and golf business and golf media, and it's handled entirely differently. And I think we just kind of see patterns like that within the industry as a whole. A lot of it's shocking. I've been on the winning and losing end of that throughout my career in uh, several, several different instances, which we may or may not get into here today. And really looking at something like that saying, wow, at some juncture, this needs to change. 
and credit where credit is due is uh, something that I've posted in a tagline in a couple of my posts and recognition for, you know, how did I get to this point? I think one of, for me personally, getting onto the Golf Digest best young teacher list and the best in state list last year was for me, recognition that when somebody says to you, you you're standing on the shoulders of others, it, it starts to make a little more sense when you're actually there. And you look back on the on the career to date and say, I don't get here if I don't meet X, Y, or Z person along the way. So uh, I think it, it's important to offer that credit to, you know, my for me, my mentors, the people that I've learned from and worked with to date, and would like to think that that type of respect for others translates across the board here, especially in instances like this, where you have somebody win on one of the game's top stages, they should receive a little bit of credit, especially since you were mentioned in an interview with the player at the same time. Yeah, so literally at the end of the fucking interview, you mentioned who he's working with too. That's the best part. Right. So at some point we would like to spell things like that out and just be a little more transparent on that front. Maybe there's a little less, uh, on the political front involved in something as basic as that. I had a, uh, before uh, Brandon, sorry, I just want to mention one quick thing. I even had a golf channel um, employee who I know, and I'm very close to send me a text message after the article came out and said, you're too good not to be noticed. Like keep your head up kind of thing. Cause I'm sure he knew that I was going to see the article obviously. Right. And like the headline of the article is literally new coach helps Darren back to winning ways or something like that. Like you're literally fucking saying new coach in the headline and there's no mention of who the coach is. I found that so funny. Um, I mean, look, I, I'm coming across as very negative and like salty about it. To be honest, I am a little salty. I mean, if we're, we're not going to hide the truth here, I mean, obviously I'm a little salty about it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the important part is that Darren won the event. Let's not make any mistake about it, right? Like if Darren doesn't win the event, I'm, I'm nobody. So I just wanted to kind of mention that. I'll let Brandon jump in now. Yeah, I kind of feel like the the golf the golf media industry kind of shoots themselves in the foot w- with actions like this because, you know, on one hand, I kind of understand how maybe the PGA of Canada or America or whatever, you know, maybe um, are hesitant to include and nominate and uh, and and bring up people who aren't part of their association as like a means to maybe get you to join the association it's a tactic i understand it's not it's not the best way in my opinion of doing things but i can see how that makes sense but then when you go to the second layer of like golf media for example golf channel golf digest there's no policy that these guys have that they can't nominate mention speak of bring up you know, promote anyone who's not in a member or not. It just kind of like it's this mentality that leaks into the media. And when you're talking about growing the game of golf, I don't see that as a as a as a proponent or a positive thing of of trying to grow the game. If anything, you're doing the opposite. You're encouraging people like Shaheen, a amazing coach, to not want to you know uh, to join any sort of membership or or association or anything if anything it's just like he just said it's making him salty like why would you want that and especially in golf when i feel like it's one of the few sports where a coach has such a direct impact on the performance of a player not to say that the players aren't super talented of course they're super talented and they wouldn't be there if they didn't have that talent and those skills and the hard work that they put in but you know when you're talking about uh, a, a, an individual player in a sport where every single thing they do from a static position matters. A coach has a huge influence there, and, and not to mention them is just beyond me. So, 
I kind of feel like it's just a backwards way of thinking when they say, let's promote the sport of golf. We have to grow the sport of golf. You're, you're not doing that by doing things like this. That's what I think. Yeah, I uh, I agree. And we're going to leave it there before people start sending me messages being like, all right, dude, stop fucking complaining. You're, like, you're Darren Wandy. Darren Wandy event. Like, stop fucking. Erased. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just to kind of follow up with that, I guess somebody has sent me a question just saying, what's it like working with Darren? I mean, to be honest, my first impressions were obviously you're always in awe in a good way working with a, a legend like that. I mean, we're talking about like multiple, multiple Ryder Cups, Ryder Cup captain, British Open winner, Open Championship, <clears throat> um, you know, over 10 European Tour wins. I mean, we're talking about like one of the best of the best ever from Europe to do it. Uh, I would have assumed going into it, if I'm being completely honest, that he would have been a little bit... Uh, I guess like nonchalant about practicing because you're on the champions tour. It has this reputation of it's a little more lazy. People don't grind as hard, man. Did he prove me wrong? Let me tell you, like Darren was grinding for two weeks straight when we started working together every single day for like two hours, really trying to implement the swing changes we're doing very open and honest discussions. He's super willing to learn, even though he's older than me and has way more experience in the game than me. He's willing to listen to what my thoughts were and try to associate feels to what we're trying to do. And, um, you know, obviously just an all around great personality. I mean, I think his personality shines and everybody knows that, but like even beyond his personality, I was very, very impressed with um, how committed he was at this stage of his career uh, to still want to be the best no matter where he's playing. And uh, he's obviously started to prove that already over the first couple of uh, tournaments or the last couple of tournaments rather that he's played. So, that's kind of, uh, you know, my opinion of him went into it very like, oh, he's just playing on the Champions League. He's not going to care that much to no, he he fucking cares. Like he cares a lot and he really grinds hard. So, um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's my answer to that one. Uh, Preston, you had um, some. Actually, I had, I had a yeah, question sorry. for you when working with DC. What would you say is the difference between working with someone who's had that much success and working with, like, say, an amateur who's who could maybe, in a sense, be more determined. Like, you forget the notion that an amateur or someone coming up in the lower tours has more of a drive to want to make it versus someone like DC who's had so much success and maybe they're more talented. But, like, what, what do you notice in the differences between working with someone like him and working with someone on the Sailor Corn Ferry Tour? Uh, well, first of all, I would say that there is, like, a confidence that exudes in their personality and their vibe as a whole when you're working with a guy like Darren. Uh, and I would say that that's really the biggest difference. You know, they're both, both are going to be very determined. Both are very talented. Don't get me wrong. Like the line between the corn Ferry and the PGA tour is like a missed five foot putt sometimes. Like it's crazy how thin the margins are. Um, and so I'll let Preston answer about the, the putting stuff, <laughs> but uh, of course, you know, of course it's a missed five footer. Thanks. Yeah. No pressure. on <laughs> <laughs> it could be a miss green by the way that caused him to have to hit it to five feet also just a heads up um, thanks there we go that's better yeah um but so the margins are very small so i would say that in terms of like pure raw talent i don't know if there's a huge difference between guys like that i would say what the biggest difference is you know overall obviously they're more skilled to have achieved so much more in the game i mean that's just the reality of it the other player hasn't done that yet but the biggest difference to me has always just been this confidence of like, I know how to do this because I've done it before. And, 
you know, he's gone through the process. Like Darren's a player who has gone through the process of multiple coaches. He's gone through the process of multiple swing changes. He's won events throughout his career for 20, 25, 30 years. He's done it all. So when you are like, when he's working with a new coach, which in this instance, obviously is me, um, you know, what ended up happening was when we started discussing working on swing changes, there wasn't any like doubt in the back of the mind. There wasn't any like, how do I go about practicing? Like when you're work- talking with a player like Darren, like I don't tell Darren how to practice. I mean, I'm very open and honest here. Like I'm not trying to tell Darren how to structure his practice sessions. I'm not there telling Darren he has to hit so many balls a certain amount with so many slow swings. With Darren, he's a kind of player who has so much more experience and he knows how to go through that whole routine that really it's just about discussing what he needs to change in his golf swing. And then from there, we discuss what feels translate that way. But uh, it's, it's almost easier for me, if I'm being honest, because there is less work on my end of having to make sure his practice sessions are so structured because he knows how to do all that. So I would say that's the biggest difference, that and just the confidence and like the I've been there, I've done this. I'm not really too concerned about what the process is going to be like when I'm in the middle of making a swing change. Well, well, let's talk about that fine line between the PGA Tour and the Corn Ferry Tour at this point, right? I mean, just my example that I always go to is uh, Nate Lashley getting in as fifth alternate into the Rocket Mortgage some years ago, and he's 352nd, I think, in the, in the world. It gets in as an alternate, goes out and wins by a comfortable margin at the event. And that just goes to prove that at that when you start getting to this level it's anybody's game one of my uh one of my players i worked with on pj tour canada pretty much said it best he said at the at a certain level let's call it, let's call it mckenzie tour that maybe 40% of the field has a legitimate chance of winning then you get to the next level on corn ferry and you know 70 80% of the field can win on any given day and then you get to the highest level and anybody that's teeing it up that week has the capability of winning I think that's really important for anybody that's out there looking to perform at this high level, pursue that professional career, that there needs to be the recognition that your competition gets stiffer and stiffer. And it's a fine margin between did I win? Did I lose? Did I make or miss a cut? I will say there is a noticeable difference in the skill level of a player on average between the McKenzie tour and the corn Ferry tour. And then between the corn Ferry tour and the PGA tour, you know, people think that like all these guys are all professionals, you know, one can beat the other. Yeah. On, on, on the McKenzie tours best day, he can probably beat a PGA tour player pretty often if he's really playing amazing, but over the course of a whole season, I, I really don't think so. You know, take out the top, let's say 5% of the tour, you know, the top 5% of any mini tour, and I'm talking PGA affiliate mini tour. So like PGA tour, Canada, PGA McKenzie tour, PGA tour, LA, Latin America, the top 5% of any of those tours are probably good enough to compete pretty regularly on the corn Ferry and maybe even the PGA tour. Right. But when you take out that 5%, like the depth of the field starts to diminish pretty quick. The guy who's in the middle of the pack in the McKenzie tour is not good enough to compete on the PGA tour. Not at this present moment. He's going to have to improve something, he or she, right? And we can be comparing the same thing with like, you know, the the top 1% of the Cactus Tour in, in, in the women's side can probably compete with the LPGA. But then as you start to get, you know, a little deeper into the money rankings and the list, like the field thins out pretty quick. So like the person who's finishing 25th every week on the Cactus Tour has no chance competing against the LPGA. I'm sorry, I don't think so. I coach these players. They're not good enough. Like 
whether that's a cactus or I coach the LPGA girls and I know how much better they are. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with how thin the margins are like, yeah, I mean, look, I work with a guy called Chandler Blanchett. Okay. So Chandler had no status on the corn ferry Monday qualified into an event by shooting six under or something like that in his last four holes to Monday qualify into the event, finished tied fourth in the event, gets into the next week, finishes top 10 in the next week, has status the rest of the year. COVID happens, has status for two years. Now, all of a sudden, he went from having no status and no fields to play in, had to shoot six under and four holes. That's how thin the margin is just to Monday qualify. All of a sudden now has full status on the Corn Ferry. So like, yeah, you know, you can one hot week can make or break you. But I do not think that the middle of the pack player in a mini tour event has the chance to compete on the biggest stage. You know, the the fields do. I, I agree with what Preston said, like the fields thin out a lot quicker. They're not as deep on the mini tours as they are at the higher levels. I think for us as coaches, our job is to start highlighting for players where are those opportunities, because it is just that it is such a fine margin. What are we doing differently and the technique and the information side to at least provide a better opportunity, um, you know, for recognizing for a player that the pitch shot that you hit to three feet has a make percentage of roughly 98%. But if you hit that pitch shot to six feet, you're down to 60%. And while you might make the six footer in the moment, you don't notice that, but let's stretch that out over the course of, you know, a month, six months of full season with those types of patterns, eventually you're going to lose the numbers game. You can't defy the averages for that extended period of time and expect to land on any sort of reliable success and performance capability and just really showing players that well on the putting side one example that I always give to players is that your speed isn't good inside of 20 feet and then at 21 feet it sucks it, it just doesn't work that way there's yeah. just because you don't three putt from inside of 20 feet doesn't necessarily mean your speed is good and I would challenge players to recognize what's different about their delivery speed, their capture speed, and how often they can repeat that. You know, we know there's a blend of read speed and direction that makes this ball go in. And if we're just because we're making a 15% margin of error on a 10 footer, we don't see that as a problem, but you make a 15% margin of error on a 40 footer, there's a mild problem of sorts there. So that's one worth worth addressing too, making sure that our dispersions are tighter. And most people aren't thinking about it that way. They're just deciding if their speed's good based on predicated on whether or not they three putt. So just a different way. Well, of I, have a fo- I have a follow-up question for you. Like what happens in a scenario for, I don't want to throw him under the bus, but like a guy like Jordan Spieth, who obviously has been struggling the last couple of years. I mean, it's like well-documented that Jordan putted well above the average make percentages between like, let's say 10 and 25 feet. I think the numbers might've been like 15, 25, but like he was holding an absurd amount of putts way above uh, what the tour averages for like a two year period or whatever hot streak he had. Right. Like at a certain point, you mentioned, this is a numbers game. It's going to catch up to you. Like clearly the numbers have caught up to him and he's not holding those putts and like, you know, his variance has started to shift a little bit lower now back closer towards the make percentages. You know, when you see something like that happening, do you think that was just inevitable that it was going to happen at some point? Or do you think that, um, you know, something else kind of came up, let's say? On paper, yes, those numbers should shift back. You, you know, this, the law of large numbers is always going to win in some capacity. 
you have to wonder if there are stressors in other parts of the game that cause a decrease in performance in an area that he was previously excelling and beating the averages too. So if we're not hitting as many greens because we're in the trees and there's a lot of scrambling, all of a sudden there's just added pressure in a part of the game and eventually that breaks at some point. Um, he did have that slump there for a little bit. I feel like 2019, uh, he finished second in strokes gain putting though. I know it was recently. It was like one of the last couple of years. He finished second in strokes gained putting, so he's back, quote unquote, as far as performance goes. And I would need to look a little more closely at the numbers and what the strokes gain was at different ranges to better articulate on something like that. But you know, you, it goes back to for for putting and, and a statistic that's probably has one of a, a lower correlation between money earned on tour, as I shoot myself in the foot here by saying putting's it's, it's technically not as important. <laughs> um, you know, the, it's the, it's the idea that maybe we should consider the emotional attachment to this too. And that it's yes, putting might not have the biggest benefit as far as strokes gain goes, but really my, my job is going to be probably the last shot you hit in any round, in most cases, whether that yeah. be a 10 footer tap in a lengthy putt to win a tournament. So uh, there's the, there's more to it than just the numbers. As we circle back to talking about Jordan and the performance aspect of it, it's like, okay, the numbers do dictate a, to a degree, what's getting ready to happen here, where we should start paying attention. And then it just consider some of the external factors too, whether that be emotion or how we got to that point. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's a good answer. I like that. Um, so somebody sent in a question and we almost had a debate on like how, what the person was implying with the question, because it was worded so specifically with the semantics of it, but somebody sent in a question that said, how do you hit a fade with a neutral swing? So I, I might even have paraphrased that wrong, but I think that's how they had asked the question. And so <laughs> we were talking about this going, well, first of all, I want to make very clear. There are a lot of different ways you can play a fade and retain functionality to it. You know, not every single golfer, especially on the PGA Tour that I've seen, hits a fade with a path that's out to in and a face that's just slightly open to it. And it's this like pull fade that looks really good. There are a lot of players on the PGA Tour who actually hit push cuts, but because they're offsetting it with their alignment, you can't really tell. And it just looks like a fade on television. So like, you know, player aims, X player aims 30 yards left as a right-handed golfer and just leaves the face open and literally hits a push that also fades, right? So it's like a push that starts online, let's say, and like leaks to the right. So when somebody asks the question of how do you hit a fade with a neutral swing? Well, first of all, it depends what you, what you're implying. Like if you mean the swing is totally neutral, like club path, face angle are neutral. Well, then you can't hit a fade unless you're healing every single driver shot because the, the driver heel ball is going to give you some nice gear effect and it's going to cause the ball to fade. Uh, it's also going to increase the spin rate and cause it to launch a little low and all sorts of other things, but let's just say, right? Um, but how do you hit a fade with a neutral swing? Well, are you talking neutral path? If you're talking neutral path, then the face angle needs to be open and that turns into a push fade, right? You know, th this is another thing I kind of want to talk about with Preston and, and with Brandon. There are a lot of pictures on the internet of like ball flights and the names on the on the lines that you see. So have you ever seen like those pictures where it's like, you know, a the, graph that describes what yeah, kind of ball flight it is. Yeah. And yeah, so like, we all, we all know there's only nine of those, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm so, sorry. Putting guy, I'll back out. <laughs> no, no. First of all, 
Preston, don't talk like you don't know the full swing. Let's be realistic here. Preston gives a ton of full swing lessons too. Trying to make it 100% putting, but Preston knows his full swing very well as well. Um, so I want to talk about that graph. This question actually kind of leads me into talking about that graph. I'm one of the coaches who believes, and Brandon and Preston might actually disagree with me here because we have never discussed this, but I'm one of the people who believes that the best way to describe a ball flight is to use an adjective for the start and to use an adjective for the curve. And that way, it gives enough detail for you to know exactly what's going on. People say, what's the difference between a draw and a push draw? Well, to me, just imply that the push is starting to the right for a right-handed player and drawing back. And a straight draw, if you just add the word straight to it, starts straight and then draws to the left. So I actually don't like just the word draw and just the word fade because I find that it's not detailed enough to make the player fully understand what's happening because some people use the word draw when it's a push draw and they just say, I'm drawing the ball. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so if you add this extra adjective to the graph for every ball flight you see, meaning it's either a pull draw, straight draw, or push draw. It's either a pull fade, straight, like straight fade, or push fade. You know, it makes it so much easier to imply the first adjective is going to be the direction that the ball starts in. The second adjective is going to be the direction that the ball curves towards. And using those two adjectives together, it gets really easy. And you can even add a third adjective for the height of it. Low pull draw, high pull draw, low push fade, high push fade. With those three adjectives together, the height, the start line, and the curvature, you can know exactly what's going on with the golf ball. It's super simple for a player to understand. And there's no kind of semantics of, oh, but I'm hitting a draw, but it's a, it's a push draw and a draw is the same thing. Why are we saying it's the same thing? Why don't we just make it a little bit, add that extra little adjective of detail so that there's never going to be any confusion on what the actual ball is doing in the air. That's my thought process on it. What? And clearly I'm heated by this for some reason, but yeah. What about those uh, those specialty <laughs> shots like a duck skull? <laughs> yeah, well, I've seen Brandon hit enough of these specialty shots in my lifetime, and especially um, in our simulator area to to say that not all ball flights can actually be clarified with adjectives. Some ball flights you just have no adjectives for. But... No words, is silent. But no, I, I tend to agree with you. I think it makes sense. I mean, you're basically just putting a matrix like description system on a bunch of shots. So why not just make it easier to understand? There are some words that I have. I find people like to throw in just to like give their, their shots of like a duck hook. Like why not just call it a low hook or something like a low pull hook or whatever. Like, I'll tell you why. Because the media... And the analysts who work on television during the broadcasts buzzwords really use a lot of big buzzwords. They romanticize these words, you know, the trap draw and like, you low, know, all these low, low slider, like all these like terms that really at the end of the day, first of all, they're probably describing incorrectly what's actually taking place. And then number two, they're using these words that really don't mean anything beyond like the um, they're sexy words. Exactly. Like, uh, I, I'm even missing the adjective here to explain it, but like they are. They're like these sexy words that are really exciting for a player, uh, for a, an audience to listen to on television, but they mean nothing to anybody. And if you ask a coach, you're like, I don't know what the hell this person is talking a low about. Low stinger. You know? I love when they, when they, when someone pulls off a crazy shot and then. First of all, low actually. stinger. A stinger by def definition is low. Why do you need to add the word yeah. low to stinger? Yeah. That's another thing. Like, I don't when get they that. Start, you guys have you ever seen. Have you ever seen the high stinger? <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> Isn't a high stinger just a ball that never comes down? It just keeps going up forever. <laughs> it just keeps on going. 
That's a, that's but, another thing. Like, why? Why is the word low even there? Like, stinger by definition is already low. But they'll, they'll start describing the shot, or they'll start they'll they'll say the shot like, oh, here he is. He hits out of the woods a stinger, and then they go on to explain how he hit the stinger or she hit the stinger, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, they hit by putting the ball slightly, you know, below their feet, and then you know, creating some lag. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, that's not what they're doing. Like. It just gets frustrating, and I'm sure it makes the user, the, the user, the listener or the viewer on TV watching going like, oh, yeah, like they're just getting like into this vortex of like <laughs> trying to want to do it by while at the same time not understanding what the person is saying. Do you know how many full swing lessons than what I gave back in the day that we've got the trap draw and trying to pinch it? I mean, all yeah. the catch loses is really yeah. just create some line. And I, th- I think you use the I think you use the phrase best. They try to romanticize these ideas that really have no meaning. Now, even on the putting side, for when a player's you know shooting me a text saying how it did or didn't go out there, and when it's not going well, it's always this very post-round interview cliche laden mess of words where i go okay that doesn't tell me anything tell me like what the ball did yeah right and it's like one of those questions, yeah one of those questions i even asked during a during a, the initial interview with somebody when i'm meeting them for the first time okay when you go get a full swing lesson you're there because the ball's not doing something that you needed to do I'm going to ask you the same question as it pertains to putting what is the ball not doing that you needed to do yeah, and I, going, going back to earlier's example that, you know, there's so many things that we address on the full swing side and we just never seem to cross over the cart path to the putting green with the same mentality in some of those areas. And, you know, the catchphrases of straight back, straight through arc stroke, it's all just piled in there. And when the speed's bad, I just didn't have a good feel for the speed that day. Like, okay. I, I will say um, any type of information that any listener is going to take from a professional golfer or a professional athlete of any place, always take it with a grain of salt because they are always going to describe things based on the feels that they are having. And that might not necessarily make a lot of sense to people because it's not actually the reality of what's taking place. Like, so Brandon mentioned this idea of like, you know, the awful explanations you hear about how people hit these stingers. A lot of times, you're looking at that and you're like, what is this person talking about? First of all, again, sexy words that mean nothing to anybody. But then also, sometimes the information is actually false. Like, it's actually not correct. Our job as a coach is not to tell you what to feel. Feel is subjective. We can't control that. I'm sorry. I can't, you know, four pers- play- different players can hit a, a, a push draw. One of them is going to be feeling his left toe. One of them is going to be feeling his right shoulder. One's going to be feeling his left knuckle. Like, I can't tell you what to feel. All I can tell you is what you need to actually change in reality to get there, right? And so when you see these players do these, like, uh, teaching academy 30-minute uh, sessions on Golf Channel, like be very careful. These players more often than not are explaining the feels of what they're doing might not necessarily be what's actually happening. So like a player telling Preston, oh, I'm just trying to keep the putter straight back, straight through. For all you know, this player is doing none of the sorts. That might be what he's feeling. But then if somebody tries to replicate that in reality, they're going to go down a dark path and like really fuck up their golf swing as a whole. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Seth and I were having that chat yesterday during our session about how important it is to take the technical information that is sound and make sure that it's we're guiding the player's approach to something that's more meaningful, as opposed to 
when the player says, well, I heard this, saw this on Insta, read this, and well, let's go down that road and explore it. I mean, that was one of those moments in the conversation where I go, man, I wish I'd recorded that because that is pretty on point that we're just trying to guide the journey and make sure that we stay on the tracks and don't deviate too far from the information because you could play in a group with a guy that rolls it great and you just say, well, I saw so-and-so doing this. Meanwhile, one guy's 5'9", the other guy's 6'4", and they're going to just hold it differently, move it differently. There's so much that's different, but we are easily distracted by the, um, uh, what is, what's that meme out there with the girl in the red dress walking by, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, the one where the guy's looking back at the, the girl and he's like oh, dishing. Absolutely. Yeah, that one. <laughs> I, think, I think a good way to look at some of these, like Shine was saying, when they're telling you on TV, like how to hit a certain shot or whatever, like, the difference between a video that you guys would put out on Instagram or on whatever platform versus what they're doing is like you're predicating the video and pre-explaining, okay, if these are your issues and you notice this and you feel this and your swing looks like this, then these are the things that might solve those problems. Whereas when you watch TV, you know, there's a one minute setup of saying, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do this. But this, this analyst or this person on TV has no idea what, any of these people's swings look like. So if if you're watching an instructional video or some sort of segment that's telling you how to hit a shot and never in that entire segment did they explain, okay, these could be the issues you have, so this is what's going to solve them, and they're just telling you straight up how to hit a shot, you should probably stay away from that because they're, you, you're, there's no information there for you to know what's going to work for you and what's not going to work for you. It's just straight pure information that this person is giving you based on his swing, not on yours, so... I think that's a good way to kind of like navigate like, okay, did they mention anything about what I could look for in my own swing and then fix? No? Okay, then forget it. Yeah, I uh, definitely agree. I always warn my players going into any lesson. If you're going to take information on the internet, if it's the actual representation of it matches the feels of it, it's fine. If the representation of what's going on doesn't match the feels they're explaining, immediately take that information and throw it out because you might start to develop a lot of bad habits through that. So um, I just want to end on one last question for Preston, since he's our new host here to answer. Uh, somebody said, if, if, uh, if I only have one hour a week, is it enough to implement changes, whether that's putting, full swing, whatever, short game? When we're taking a look at the putting specific side, we want to make sure that that one hour a week is focused on what am I trying to achieve here uh, for somebody that's struggling with a given skill like speed or launch direction. What are the steps that you're implementing from a skill development side and an awareness with feedback like uh, ball gates for start line uh, ghost holes to say, Hey, I can roll it over this target and get it to stop in a certain spot versus the mechanics that help you do the skills better. Somebody always asked me, it's like, well, do you teach skill? Do you teach skills or mechanics? And that's kind of a dumb question because ultimately it's both, right? We need to establish here's a concept with a given skill and set the framework, then introduce the mechanics to do the skills better, then go back and see how the skills are performing. And it's this constant cycle of can I create an understanding of what's supposed to happen, develop some and some awareness own that given skill or mechanic 
and then start the process over again. You know, the tagline for Preston's putting is create, develop, own, and not by accidents because it's the coaching process that we continually go through and getting people to recognize where they are in that process is pretty big. So if you're going to make that one hour effective, you need to know where am I in this little triad of efforts and then make sure that those efforts, even if it's the your success is going to be the sum of those small efforts repeated daily or whatever time frame you have available to you. So recognize where you are in that triad and then stay focused on that given point. Yes, you can get better practicing one hour a week. Are you going to make exponential improvement in the first two weeks? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on where you are in that cycle. Let's move away from golf and just say who's going to have the better F1 career long-term. I'll let Brandon answer this because he's as much of an F1 junkie as we are. Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen, who has the best career at the end of it? Define best. Most race victories. That's a tough question. I think. (laughs) Obviously, I'm I'm trying not to ask you a super obvious, easy one. I think pure talent. Max is better. I think the only reason I I think the only reason that is, is they, they both obviously know how to drive quick. And how to put a fast lap together. Charles, uh, you know, came up to the same ranks as Max and he has achieved a lot. Ferrari winning races, whatever. But I think Max just has that edge where he's not as afraid to put himself in a position to potentially get a, a, a pass or or to do something on track where everyone, everyone else, honestly, besides maybe Lewis, would be afraid to do so. So I think maybe because of that, in the right car, Max has the better career. It all depends. I mean, if Max stays at Red Bull, I don't see him uh, winning a championship anytime soon. I mean, Red Bull has consistently come third or so. I mean, like even the year, for example, where Ferrari wasn't dominant, they they couldn't capitalize and 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 give Mercedes a real challenge. You know, so um, I don't know. I I don't see him having any sort of championship under his belt if he stays at red bull he would really need to leave if he does leave then maybe max if he doesn't then i'd say charles what are what do you think the chances are that when lewis retires that the lineup ends up being like max george in mercedes no chance eh? you think max is going to stay with red bull i think if no i don't think he'll stay with red bull but i think if uh if max will not leave red bull for for a, a lower team if he leaves red bull he's going to the best team on the on the on the track yeah they would have to definitely prove something. I mean, for next year, they would have to show. But George him. is like Mercedes up and comer guy, right? So, well, George has an ex seat. That's guaranteed. I think uh, it's a question, I think, of where Valtteri stays there or not. If, Lou, if Valtteri leaves Mercedes, I mean, then there's the opportunity for Max to go. And then it's Max and George. And then that's just another, you know, a drive for drive another for Lewis season that we can another get Lewis to watch. and Rosberg, basically. Well, I mean, those are two really good drivers. Max is in a proven car that he knows he could win with. or I'm, I wouldn't say proven car, but I think he's in a team that he's been able to show his potential. And, and then George had that one race where... He clearly you know, should he, have won that race. He should Let's have won, yeah. Thing. But yeah. one race isn't a good yeah. enough of a sample size, I think, to, to say if he's a champion material or not. But he's definitely fast and he definitely knows how to race. He's a better racer than Valtteri Bottas already, I'm pretty sure. You have to cut Valtteri some slack because at the end of the day, he proved that he was a good driver with Williams when Williams had a decent car. And then when he got called up to Mercedes, I'm fairly certain that he was told that what his role was going to be there. I mean, you can't expect to go race, you know, alongside Lewis Hamilton and then think that the team is going to give you the same opportunities to win as Lewis. I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to say that they did and that, you know, the cars are the same and the engines the same, but 
at the end of the, you know, there's a lot of money behind these teams. There's a lot of sponsors behind these teams. They want to see their car winning, and they know Lewis can win. They know that he can bring it home in first. And what's going to drive decisions when a billion-dollar team? It's going to be money, and it's going to be sponsors, and it's going to be who can win. So when Lewis is on track to win, Valtteri's going to have to come second. And they've done that already. I mean, they've made team decisions to make him pass and whatever. So I mean, I wouldn't mind making a couple mil a year to rack in podiums and second-place finishes. Yeah, but that's not the reason you join... No, no, of like course. That. That's not the reason you get saying, into into racing. You get into racing. I, I, I think Valtteri joined Mercedes under the impression that at some point Lewis, Lewis is not going to be there and he's going to become their number one. Like I think that was his mentality going into signing with Mercedes. Probably a logical mentality to take headed into that. I'll go with the unpopular one here. I'll say that Leclerc has the has more wins than Verstappen by the time all said and done here. I wouldn't uh, say that's unpopular. I, well, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't. I don't follow the forms and the boards as much as you guys probably do on that front. But uh, I, I'll take I'll take Leclerc for more wins than Verstappen. I'm on Team Red Bull over here too. So I just think that as soon as Leclerc, their Ferrari gets their act together, he ends up on a team that produces a better car. I think over the course of a career. I think we'll see him with more wins. I think uh, Monza a couple of years ago was just fantastic to watch. And I think he just showed that he's quite capable of performing at that level. And I think for a car that wasn't very good this past year, he kept showing up in the showing up and scoring points week in, week out. When Didn't he get two podiums with like a tractor of a car this year? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was on the podium a couple of times. And look at that going. It's like, if he did that with that car, what does he do in a, what does he do in a Red Bull or Mercedes? Like give him something that performs at a yeah. high level. I think it's, I think it's interesting to see where this, how this shakes out in the big picture. Preston, uh, if the, think... yeah, go Brent. No, as I said, I don't think there's any clear favorite there. I think they're both fast. I think the difference between them is that they have different sorts of fan bases, right? I think everyone right now is the underdog to Lewis. Everyone decent, in my opinion, is an underdog to Lewis. Maybe First of all, let's be realistic. There's only two guys who are underdogs to Lewis at this present moment. I think it's those two. Well, I can't. You have to give everyone the same. I mean, it's tough to say. I think Daniel Ricardo. Danny, Danny Rick. Danny Rick. Yeah. Daniel Ricardo was fast. When he was at Red Bull, he was quick. He was able to win. He was able to pull podiums. He beat Vettel in his first year with Red Bull. Exactly. So there's that. I think there's some young guys who haven't had the experience mold them into the right type of driver. I'll say Lando is one of those guys. He's obviously quick. Um, but I don't think he's had enough battle scars from Formula One to be able to make the right decisions on track. And at the end of the day, that's kind of the thing you need. And I think Max developed that earlier. Same thing with Charles, maybe mainly because of the way he was brought up and the way he's trained and he's very focused and like, he's almost like a laser. So, Oh, I, I want to follow I, this up. I, I, I want to say one thing here. The last, the last thing I was going to say is that just the difference between Max and Charles is that I find one is a protagonist and one is the antagonist. Like people kind of look at Charles as like the, you know, the good guy, right? He's like the, the clean cut, like, you know, super European, Monegasque, like, you know, good looking little guy who was at Ferrari, who everyone wants to see win. And Max is kind of this like hard edged, like aggressive, you know, so it really depends what kind of character you want to like. But I think at the end of the day, they're both, they're both good. They're both the same. To be fair, I always think Ferrari is going to be like the golden pretty boy of the of the f1 so anybody who drives there is always going to be kind of the protagonist in that case ferrari is formula one yeah so um i had a follow-up and i i told oh yeah i saw a really funny video i want to end on this i saw a really funny video i felt so bad it was uh someone sent it to me it was a youtube video about like f1 all the current drivers on the grid's biggest crashes in f1 
So like you see some really disappointing, like heartbreaking crashes. You see some like massive ones that are like genuinely scary for the, for the drivers. Obviously, you know, they're risking their lives. And then you just saw Nicholas Latifi at the end and it was like a retirement on the grid. <laughs> like was his big, cause like he's only had one year and he's always at the back of the grid with that team that can't go anywhere. So I felt so, I saw that and I was like, oh man, they just should not have posted this video because it stands out so much when you look at all the crashes and then you just see like this guy just retired on the grid, like did nothing, just never started I guess that's his a car. good thing for him, right? Like he hasn't had a serious crash. Good thing, but also like if you're looking at like funny. the the intent behind the video, like it's it's just kind of funny, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, we can go on about F1 for hours, but I feel like we've been rambling on here, so we should uh, get to the interview. Yeah, we got Jeff Pierce on this week, which is really exciting. You guys all know him. Both of you know him. What do you guys like? Like besides obviously his knowledge, what would you guys say is the best thing about Jeff? He doesn't care about golf beyond <laughs> teaching golf. <laughs> He's one of the best short game instructors and he doesn't give a shit. Well, to be I fair, like I, I understand what he's coming from. Like when you're when you're a coach who's so heavily invested in the sport, and especially at the professional level where we're traveling a lot, you know, the last thing, like people always ask me, why don't you practice and like try to work on your game? Because the last fucking thing I want to do at the end of working for eight hours on the driving range is stand there for another two hours and work on my own golf swing. If I'm being honest, like I don't want to do that. I love playing golf with friends. I don't care to have to grind it out anymore because that's all I focus on with other people. So like, I love the fact about Jeff, like to bring it to him. Cause obviously the interviews about him. I love the fact that like, he doesn't give a shit beyond his, like he likes a sport, but like he doesn't care enough to like obsess over every detail about his own personal side about the sport. It's more so like, yeah, when I'm done teaching, I go have a glass of scotch or a bourbon in his case specifically um and just chill out and talk shit and that's kind of what we did even in the episode what about you preston what do you like about jeff oh the freedom the freedom in approach with his players and how the message is clear concise and honest he'll tell you exactly like it is and uh even off the golf course when we're not doing the uh work uh work related stuff he will tell you like it is uh, same way he told thing, my eight right? iron exactly like it is. <laughs> he, he, he told he told my eight iron a couple of things i'm sure he'll chat about that in the episode here if you bring it up it's uh it's it's somewhere not floating <laughs> he's funny he's funny. honestly funny. i the one thing i love the most about it jeff is that he's just like you said a straight shooter he doesn't care so he literally he sent me a, a video like right before the lockdown started of covid and he's like three under through five yep still got it and that was like his only round he played all year I was like, what did right, he Jeff. say? In the, what did he say that like he'd rather it, like it's more fun for him to just like put a bucket of ball somewhere in a like really fucked up spot on a hole and just try to get out of it for an hour than actually play the hole. Yeah, you know, he's like, like, I'll I'll never stand on a range for an hour, but I would love to just like try to get up and down from behind yeah. the tree with a four iron like eight times out of ten. You're like, what? Yeah, like just play the shot, which I get right. The shot is pretty much like what does golf come down to? Did you did you pull off the shot, right? So, anyways, we'll let him talk about it in the interview. Yeah. So here you go, guys. Jeff Pierce. All right, we got Jeff Pierce on the pod. It has been probably three years. I'm trying to get him on, but he lives off the grid way too much, uh, and prefers not to be in the spotlight. <laughs> One of the one of the things I guess we should start off right off the bat, just shooting right from the get-go, and obviously no pun intended for the conversation we're about to have, but um, the Golf Digest article just came out regarding, um, I guess, best young teachers lists, if I'm not mistaken, because I know they do different ones, like best of in-state, um, top 50, and they released the best young teachers list. 
My man Jeff Pierce has been working with tour players for 10 years or however long. Countless major championships has never once made it on any of these lists. Uh, one of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of talking to regarding um, more specifically short game and putting, but just as a whole in general as a coach. Uh, so, yeah, Jeff, uh, probably right off the bat, just firing here. But <laughs> what uh, what were your first thoughts, I guess, when you saw the article and you go, oh, once again, unfortunately, you know, they're just choosing not to put me on it. It, it was fairly predictable, obviously, most of the people on that list. And congratulations, obviously, to all the people on that list. I mean, I've, I've, I looked through it when I saw it pop up uh, on on Google the morning that it came out. And uh, I know a ton of the guys. I mean, a couple of the course king guys are on there. I know uh, Preston. TJ, TJ and Preston are both on it. TJ yeah. is on there. Yeah. So, obviously, the list is great. They're, they're doing a great job for a lot of the young instructors. And it's a great way for them to maybe get some publicity and probably change their business for a lot of for a lot of those people on there. I, I find that Joseph may have, I don't know if you've had Joe on or not. He doesn't do a lot I, of I'll, stuff. I'll tell you what I've, I've tried and he's might be the only person in the golf world who's harder to get on than you. <laughs> we share a lot of conversations. <laughs> I've talked to him a couple of times a week, but uh, you know, he, he doesn't like the list. Obviously he's got his own reasons. I, I don't mind the list. Um, but we asked the question, you know what, you know, if your job is to create the list, you know, you should be finding the people you're tasked with finding the people that are, um, obviously the best in that most list, qualified, most, qualified. most qualified, right? Uh, we both sort of hide and avoid a lot of that. I've never, uh, I've never been approached by anybody about the list. I've never filled anything out as far as I know, never been even been on a ballot, um, to be voted for. Uh, and again, congratulations to all the people on there, but in terms of results from students at the highest level, I've got a handful of majors and a couple world number ones. And I've never even been mentioned to be on the, on the list. Yeah, which I find anyway, quite ironic. I mean, anyway. even if you, because you know what I think it is, right? Like to some degree, obviously, there's a huge social media push. Of well, and, that and that's where I was, and that's where I was going. I understand the decisions I made. You know, if you Google me, you know, I you're going to find very little. Uh, I, the only social media that I have or actively use anymore is Instagram, and very little of that is golf related. Are you kidding me? I think like three or four posts ago is like <laughs> you and me in Vegas in like 2019. You remember that right hand <laughs> chip shot you did? So, so I understand that they're looking for people that are going to participate and, and sort of grow their business. And, um, you know, I don't fit that mold. Uh, so I look at the list and go, you know, it's a very useful tool for a lot of the people up and coming. Um, and it's great to be recognized for doing a lot of that. I, I, I don't do the things that they're interested in. So I'm fairly uh, unknown. I just think it's funny as we were talking about before, I'm actually a, in, in the United States now in that, in that group, I'm a higher ranked uh, pistol shooter than I am instructor. <laughs> in that, that to me is honestly mind blowing. <laughs> like you have this passion, obviously, for firearms and and you know doing it obviously in a very safe and practiced kind of situation. Sure, but, um, how can you be ranked higher for pistol shooting than you can be working with world number ones and winning major championships as a golf coach? I find that so mind boggling. That, that's the fun part. And that's where, you know, early on in my career, I set out uh, some goals and some of the goals involve some of those lists. And as you continue to grow, and as you mentioned before, I've been doing this uh, with a PGA tour between LPGA, PGA uh, for, yeah, sneaking up on a decade. So obviously in those years, as you have the different successes that you didn't realize you were going to have, your, your perspective and your, your vision on what success is. Uh, changes through that. So before I was even 30, before I was even allowed to be on the list, I think, I think it's between like 30 and 40 or under for whatever it is. 
um, you know, I'd already had players that had won major championships. First of all, it's not a surprise that you don't know what the recommendations are, like the prerequisites are to be on the list as a starting point. You're like, is, can you be on it if you're 29? I don't fucking know. So, so it, it changed. Like I, I was at the point early on, I was like, I can't believe I'm not getting recognition for doing really, really good work. Uh, and now it's, uh, you know, it's really not on my radar. I just still, I usually joke with Joe because it's a good way to get him uh, excited about the list because he's a lot more passionate about it than I am. I just... I think they're ironic. I think it's, I think it's kind of funny. Uh, uh, the political side of it, which I'm very bad at. So, well, I think you made a really good point as a right off the get go of, you know, a lot of people use this as a kind of a stepping stone to push their marketing and to get a bigger clientele base. Absolutely. It has tremendous power. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like it or not, golf digest is still one of, if not the biggest, you know, golf magazines or website publications or whatever out there. So being on that list helps a lot. And I mean, I was on the fact that I was on the top 75 international list. And you're not on the American list of like 150 people I find is ridiculous. But just just to say so, like, you know, you're doing really well. You're working with major champions. You know, you're obviously keeping plenty busy as it is. So I don't really think that it bothers you as much now. But I can certainly understand your point of view, like when you were younger of like, you know, your career is not at the stage that it is now. And you were obviously not making the money that you are now that it's like, well, why the fuck am I not, you know, being chosen for the place? Because realistically speaking, that was actually my own first experience too. Like when I first started coaching and I was starting to do really well and like starting to work with tour players, kind of like you were back then. Obviously me, it's much more recent, but uh, you know, my first thought process was kind of the same, like, but I was just salty of being like, well, why the fuck don't they have a Canadian list or why don't they have an international? There's only, and there's only look- two people that teach golf in Canada. <laughs> You're not two. I'll tell you what, we're three in Quebec and I think all of us are on the list. It's almost like at that point, you know? So, um, yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, you know, who cares? Right. At the end of the day, that's yeah. kind of where we're getting. Like, at. And that's why I always say it's great. It's great for the people that are making the effort and doing the things that that list wants, you know, they're, they're writing, uh, you know, they're writing into the, the magazine, they're sending content in. So they're getting recognized for stuff that they've done. So at, at no point, uh, I take anything away from anyone on that list. I just, I, you know, I always thought it was kind of interesting. The, uh, the criteria. All right. So getting away from that, obviously we're talking about the fact that you worked with a bunch of major champions. Um, you know, we, I wanted to kind of bring up who you're working. First of all, you just mentioned before we kind of jumped on the pod that your model for teaching tour players has changed quite a bit. Um, first of all, can we talk a little bit about Brooks? Um, you know, you worked with him winning majors. You know, what's first of all, what was the experience like? I would love to know your point of view as a coach of like, you finally work with a tour player who wins. A, was he your first major winner? Yeah. Yeah. So like, what's the experience like? Because I mean, at the end of the day, you ask any coach, the holy grail is you're working with a player who wins a major championship. Like that's kind of the end point of it. You know, he won the right. biggest tournament in the world and he got to world number one. There's not really much more you could like, you can continue with these accolades, but like, there's not really much more you can do as a coach than to get right. the number one ranking. So what was that experience like? So, you know, you, you start from the beginning there. I, I started working for him when I was at the Floridian. Uh, and this was, uh, I get the years wrong, maybe, maybe like 2012, 13, 14, 15 was the time I was down in Florida working at the Harmon uh, School of Golf down here. And obviously a ton of great players in the Jupiter area where we're at. And, you know, Brooks is one of the guys that came through there. Uh, just honestly being in the right place at the right time, obviously I had to do some positive things to get, uh, employment with the Harmon family. They're obviously a well-known, uh, established name and probably yeah. the, the, the most recognizable market. name in, right. yeah. in, so coach, they, in coaching yeah. for sure. 
so, you know, obviously I, I wasn't uh, super green when I got there, but a lot of being in the right place at the right time where I got to be around very talented players. And that was my goal to make it uh, down well, down here. I'm here now um, years ago was because I wanted to work with good players. I think anybody that teaches golf, they understand how much fun that is to work with people that can can execute what you're asking them to do. It's a true test for your information at that point. You remove a variable of can can this person actually do what they're trying to do. So it was a lot of fun, and I and I got to meet a lot of the guys that I've worked with for years down here at that time period. But Brooks, we started out, uh, he was playing. Guy didn't have a place to play. The guy didn't make it through Q. I think he, he didn't make it through second stage of Q school back in, it was like 2012, which whatever is, year. Which is the hardest stage to get through, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Always, stage, always second stage. Yeah, that's, where, that's what catches everybody. Um, so he was playing like the challenge tour, which is like the European corn ferry. They go all, all over the place. So he'd be gone for five or six weeks, come back for a week or two. We'd get some work in here and there. And then, um, basically like 2014, we, he really wanted to dive into, we really dug into his first full year as professional. We were playing some European tour and we had some decent data to look at. I made some suggestions, dug into some of the equipment and found some weak spots in the game. And we started a pretty good relationship of uh, seeing some improvement and some trust and uh, did a little bit of work. And then he won the, I think the Turkish airline open. I think that was maybe that, that was his first biggest win, right? That was his first big win. Yeah. That was his first big win. So we'd been working for a little while the year leading up to that. And then he came back and yeah, that would have been 14 because 15, we basically in that, in that winter period, we sat down. I was like, look, your, your, your putting's pretty bad. It's, it's the worst thing you've got going on. We really need to dig into it. And, and see what's going on. So we spent a tremendous amount of basically all of December and January. He didn't he didn't play any of the West Coast because he he didn't feel like he was ready to get going. First tournament he played was Phoenix or uh, Scottsdale, uh, which he won. Uh, and you know, it's one of the first times he gained strokes in a tournament. He actually uh, one of the first times anybody had any idea who I was. He actually mentioned and thanked me right at, on the 18th green, right before the Super Bowl. Your right only, your only moment, your only moment on camera, right there. Only, only moment. That's when, that's when the government knew who I was for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, so that was a lot of fun. That's how we we started out with a little bit of a bang. So there was, you know, a lot of fun early on. There was a lot of trust built, you know, uh, in that relationship as we continued to uh, get better. And he started climbing the world rankings, and then. What was it, 15, 15 or 16? I, again, I lose track of the years. His first major, Aaron Hills, whatever whatever that was. I think so he it was won a couple seven, of 16 or 17, right? Six, yeah. 16? I, think it was um, I was out there earlier in the week and um, left on. He was looking great. I mean, he looked fantastic. Uh, you know, some great stories about you know, Pete Cowan really helping out there too and doing some coaching, not just the physical side of the game, but really doing some good job uh, coaching in early in that week. And I left on Thursday. Uh, talked to him. I was like, man, you're great. You're doing everything. If you need anything, I'm, you know, you can call me, but he was ready to go. Like it was, it was pretty clear to everybody on the team. And there's been a couple of the majors that he's won that at the start of the week, he was, he was going to win, you know, like and that he was, was pretty, like guaranteed to be, in it was, it was going to, he was going to win. Right. So I flew back and I was actually sitting, it was Sunday. I'd had Scott Piercy, uh, who's, who worked with, you know, Jeff Smith, one of Jeff Smith's guys worked with for years. Yeah. Who was really struggling. So he flew, I was at North Car in North Carolina at the time. So he flew to North Carolina for the weekend to work. So we're sitting Sunday night at dinner in a little, uh, little sports bar, bar, I'd been in North Carolina and turn the TV on. He's on like, like he's on like 14. Oh shit. 
<laughs> so you weren't even watching round like hole per hole. You literally were at a restaurant with Scott Piercy. I was working. So we were working like we literally finished working for the day and then and then we were going to get dinner and we turn it on. I'm like, he he's gonna win this thing. <laughs> so he, you know, he wins, he calls me. You know, we obviously we were in the right spot. We we're in a sports bar, so the rest of the night went the way it was supposed to. Yeah. But uh, he called me, you know, right after and, and we talked for a few minutes, and that was a lot of fun. Like you said, that's sort of you know, that changes a little bit of what you, you go as a coach. Like you, you, at that point I've accomplished, I've helped someone, I've been a part of someone accomplishing really one of the few things. Yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of fun. You know, the emotions are obviously positive and everything's great. It's, it's, I never set out when I was teaching golfers to think that that was really ever going to happen to me. You know, I've always been a very low key person. I stay hidden. I don't really do anything public. So your aspirations of, was, I wanted to help some guys be really good, but I had never thought it was never a goal because I never even thought it would be an opportunity I'd have. So a lot of positive things that lined up with a lot of good work. But uh, yeah, it was a fun ride and, and it was for years. So I have a follow up question to that. Yeah. What obviously that's like, you know, I would imagine one of the like peaks of how euphoric and amazing everything can feel and everything. What is it like to then fo try to follow that up with the pressure because obviously it goes from being like, you know, there's no pressure and he's doing well and things are on the up to now this guy just won one or two majors and now he's the number one ranked player in the world and everyone's gunning for this guy and you you have to kind of back that up with consistent play because he can only go downhill from there, right? So yeah. how, do, how does that feeling change mentally for you as a coach? Did you feel that pressure too working with him at that point? Well, it, you know, you're right. Once you're, once you're at the top, you know, th there is one way to go. You know, you can't be any better. Um, the the cool thing about that guy and what makes him who he is, is that uh, he didn't feel like that was the top. You know, that was obviously. Very Tiger-esque mentality. Yeah. Anytime you're going up in trajectory, uh, very rarely is being above everybody the peak. There's an unlimited amount of room for you to continue going up. Mm -hmm. So, to be honest, early on, you know, we, we, uh, we didn't really do anything differently. Obviously, if you, you're winning majors, you're winning golf tournaments, you're world number one, and you sustain that for a while, you know, the formula is pretty successful. Um, at that point, you know, we, we reevaluated to look at stuff on a smaller scale. We knew we had the bigger, you know, pretty much at that point, you don't have anything glaring that's bad. So you start having to manage uh, not getting hung up in minutia, like not trying to find things that matter and then end up changing things that didn't matter. And at the end of the day, change is change. It's not yeah. the same. So I had to become much more careful about and well thought out about if looking at making something perfect was as good as it as being functional. Right. Uh, I had to I had to be a little more clever with what I chose to bring into the arena. I hid, and this guy does we we never even had this conversation and, and never will. I hid more things um from him specifically through that long stretch that he doesn't realize he did or doesn't do uh, because addressing those things is is oil and water at that point you, you you bring them to life he doesn't know he does or doesn't do them so if you mention them yeah they're, they're I, I use fine. i use that analogy of like you never look at what cars are kind of around you on the highway, but then as soon, let's say you buy a car, all of a sudden you start to notice that car everywhere because you're you start seeing it. You start paying attention to it, you know. So it's like, a lot easier to find red cars if you're <laughs> thinking red car. Yeah. yeah. So if he's not if he's not thinking about what he was doing or not doing, you'll, he'll yeah. never he'll never pick up on that and then kind of go into that like that 
like that it's a spiral yeah spiral. so yeah I, I feel like that was probably you know what the physical change of a stroke took a little while but it really wasn't difficult it just took some time for it to become normal the, the tougher stuff being you know him understanding touch control him understanding green reading which is where the tricky part came in because his you know some of the matchups of his speeds and his green reads versus actual start lines and aims weren't what he thought they were right but they were extremely functional and that's sort of what's all about I, I hit a lot of things from him um and he's you know he's we moved on uh, we we stopped working again uh, middle of this summer and he's obviously with who i think is probably the best putting coach on the planet phil kenyon is unbelievable the guys is that who he's are, with at the moment yeah yeah so they they picked up uh their kind of late summer i mean that that guy to me is the you know he's the marker for putting instruction he's the he's the best on the planet in my opinion right mm -hmm. uh which that's whatever um but the change you know i mentioned before change is change you know so he's going to take something that was very functional i mean when we were working together the first three uninterrupted years he didn't get outside the top 20 in strokes game putting we had a season and a half off we came back and then you know in the stretch we're back in that first season he was gaining a little over 0.6 around so we had a very very successful situation um but changes change. So to answer that question, you know, the, how that relationship changes is that there's always the demise of a good player. It happened to Tiger, wants to get better, wants to get better, wants to get better. There's a wall somewhere up there where you can't get better um, with what you have because it's as functional as it po it's, it's, it's output is as high as it can possibly be in the, in the situation that it lives in. So to look for more is where the players uh, at some level start coming back down. And, you know, and that's – then they figure it out, and you see the guys that are really good float around the top of the world. Like, they're going to do. They're obviously unbelievable. Happened to Tiger, right? Wanted to get better, wanted to get better, wanted to get better. And you can't – there's a ceiling to your functionality. So, to go above that ceiling, you've got to shift a lot of stuff to, to possibly, possibly get better. That's so the, but that's the goal. thing. It's the, it's the potential that, that I guess, potential. is what's enticing. And right? if you made it to world number one, you're greedy in a positive sense. So, you're going to gamble. So, that's right. – you know, so that's where the change happens. I mean, how much gambling is he doing? He's won what four majors, <laughs> three four yeah, majors. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, uh, all right. So straying away from Brooks, then um, I kind of mentioned it, but then we went a little off topic. Your model for teaching tour players has changed. I know you don't like being in the spotlight that much, and you would much prefer being off the grid at home. So, um, I would imagine that you're not interested anymore to f fly to as many tour events as you used to. You know what? What exactly about your teaching has changed in that regard? Yeah. So, you know, early on, I was doing a, a lot of tournaments uh, and I didn't have a really good year round place to teach out of. So I was in Florida for a while, then I had a really good spot in North Carolina, stopped going to Florida, I was going to Atlanta. But I didn't have a home really to work out of. So that's really what facilitated a lot of my travel early on in my career. But at that point, you've then created sort of an expectation out of the players that you're contracted with. Um, so in the last few years, I've, I've wanted to start pulling back on travel and I've successfully done that a little bit. I've, I've, I've cut the number of players that I work with sort of in that model down to where I traveled a little less and tried to have them play in the same tournaments. And in the last three seasons now, I've, I've got a really phenomenal place up in Kentucky. And I'm at 10, you know, 10 ish, 11 ish months out of the year. Um, so I've got a little more of a base and it gave me a little bit more uh, leverage to make players come to me more often. You couple that a little bit with, you know, obviously COVID change. We were out for three months straight. Uh, and then even when we came back, travel was tough, no restrictions. 
So I actually kind of accelerated, you know, the leverage of, I don't need to travel as much. Um, we were very successful. A lot of guys remotely. I know you do a ton of remote stuff, obviously being out of the country. I yeah. see your posts. We can be very effective. And I think it just took the players being forced into that because they were so used to. Yeah. People who my guys, my had, had no choice. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point they get forced into it. And went, you know, yeah, this is functional. This is good. So um, I finished out in 2000, what is it? 2020, you know, had some contractual obligations, some players continued traveling there once we started back up. Um, but have with everybody that I, I now work with, it looks different. So I know you asked me the question before we started, you know, who do you work with? And that answer is a different answer for me, you know, versus three years ago, you know, three years ago, it was who am I annually contracted to? Now it's like, well, well, nobody now. So it's a lot not of players come and see you, but there's no contract <laughs> obligations to travel. Yeah. With. So I, I do a lot more um, sort of carte blanche. Um, it makes more sense for me financially and time-wise being at home now that I have a year-round place, really good learning center. I've got a, I've got a phenomenal membership that, that supports us. And then of course I've got clientele, uh, corporate clientele or professional clientele, you know, all over the place. Uh, so it, I, you look at the opportunity costs and I'll make more money not working on the road as much, which is the dream. It's a win-win for me. I get yeah. to stay home and uh, still work with great players. Uh, again, I have a phenomenal facility. They love coming up. And uh, so who I work with and how we work definitely looks a little differently. And honestly, it's probably more functional. Spending a bunch of time at tournaments, as you know, is probably one of the worst places we can teach to actually try and get someone to do something different. Because they got to peg it in 48 hours or 24 hours for a living. And the problem so, is I feel like when you're only seeing a player the week of the tournaments, it's like you're so limited with their commitment to what you're actually trying absolutely. to work on. Yeah, let alone their time, you know. Yeah. So it's it's probably the worst model, but it's just what got created over the last ten years. Um, and I think honestly, the you know the there's always you think that's going to change. Absolutely, I remember we were in Dallas to start back. Um, was it Dallas? We were at uh, yeah, I think it was Dallas. Yeah, lose track. And I'm standing on the back of the range of the first tournament back, and it's me and Sean Foley and a couple of the other guys standing around. And we all were kind of joking. It's like, is everybody else here wondering why did we come here? Like the last three months, we haven't we haven't traveled. Everything's been fine. And every one of us was kind of afraid to say it initially. We're like, yeah, we're going to travel less. Like this model is going to change. It's not a sustainable model. So, you know, it's a positive thing came out of 2020. We get to change up how we do it. And, and I'll still travel. You know, I'll honestly, I'll, I'll go to a couple of tour events for some of the guys that I, I do see quite often. I'll probably do a little more corn fairy tour this year. I've got a ton of younger guys that made it on there. They've got an interesting situation with the two seasons running back to back for their uh, for their status on the. So uh, I was just having I was just having a conversation yeah. with some of my guys and even like the mini tour guys who obviously have nowhere to play right now. And they were asking, like, should I be playing a lot of Corn Ferry Mondays? And I told them, not really, because there's not really much to gain from it. Because it's a double season, so guys have a massive head start on any sort of point system. Because, you know, even if you play in a Monday, finish top 10, it's not like you're all of a sudden close to being top 75. You're still way no. behind the ball. Way back. Yeah, way so. Back. Yeah, I mean, Evan, unless Harmelin, Evan yeah. Harmelin won this, uh, won this fall as one of the guys I work with. 
and uh, had a decent season. I think he's still in 30th or 35th or something. Yeah, so, so it, it, just, it doesn't make sense to play Corn Ferry Mondays this year if you're a mini tour player. I feel like because of the double season, you kind of got ruined there a little bit. So, yeah, even, yeah so you're going to be on a – do you know which Corn yeah. Ferry events are going to be going yeah, to? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do uh, the same way with the PGA Tour. I'm going to do the ones – the golf courses and practice facilities that I like and the ones that are easy to travel to. So Corn Ferry has – they've got Nashville and they've got Knoxville which is only Nashville's less than an hour for me. Nashville's only a couple. They've got Indiana. They've got a couple in the Carolinas where I've got some people I like over there. So I'll probably hit some of that. That's in the Midwest and kind of East coast. And uh, some of the guys that have come to me for the last couple of years, you know, in, in good faith, go to them a couple of times and, and, uh, and work with them out there to see, obviously, you know, being at tournaments, we can gain some information about how they prepare and what days a week so it's useful but i'll do some p i'll, I'll probably do uh under 10 pga tour events which this will be the first year that i think even with three months off i think i did 25 this past year and i've done 30 i was gonna plus. say have you ever done under 20 even no 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 since, since i started i haven't done under 20 so um this will be the first year and i'm i'm kind of nervous i'm you know because it's a change but I'm looking forward to growing some stuff I got going at home. We got some good junior stuff going on, some elite junior stuff. So I'm, I'm looking forward to circling back into the development of some players and I'll have another wave of guys out there in three, four, five years. So it'll be fun again. Yeah. Plus you like being off the grid. Let's be honest. You love this. Yeah. I like, I, I like being at home and nobody bothered. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dude, let's talk some scientific stuff. Cause um, I can't have one of the best short game coaches on the planet here and not bust your balls a little bit with some information sure. that can help people. Um, I guess I want to start with putting because we mentioned how much you've helped Brooks with his putting. There's a lot of terrible information out there. There's a lot of really good information as a starting point. Have you, um, you know, obviously last year, a lot of the rules changed or two years ago. I can't even remember, honestly, with COVID, everything's kind of mixed yeah. up, but um do you, do you, have you established like what's useful in terms of pin in versus pin out at what distances you've seen kind of where you should be dealing with that? Or is it subjective to the player and kind of what they're seeing? Well, anytime we're going to talk about uh, science, there's nothing subjective. Um, right. However, how players feel about yeah. those things and how they, how they handle um, different visual pieces goes into that so there's some individuality into how successful some of the strategies are um if you remove people because i've said this i'm an engineer by education so the math and i'm very unemotional when it comes to answering questions people make math bad and what i say by that is you can have uh, known outcomes if you remove uh people so we know what happens when a ball hits the flagstick you know either dead center left right at certain speeds we know what happens, right? And it's it's undeniable. Like these things happen; they're bound to the laws of physics, and probability can be gained from that um, from that knowledge. How a individual that doesn't unemotionally look at those things perceives it obviously changes the probability of, of how successful that's going to be. So that's what I mean by people make math messy. They make math. Yeah, bad, they, right? they may they take an emotional influence and attach it to the exactly. They bring in other variables that don't exist in a, in a clean world. So if we're rolling balls uh, either through a machine or off of a ramp, we know, we know what the answer is. Um, given more information of how fast that ball is going to be rolling, what the player's intent is for capture speed. Right. So it's not a simple answer necessarily. Right. My basic, if I, you know, cause I've answered, I've answered this question seven several times since that rule changed. This is my basic answer. I break putts up um, into basically uh, two separate categories uh, in the sense that 
outside of a certain range, my players are exclusively trying to die the ball in the hole. So let's say outside of 20 feet, every putt, regardless of every putt they're going to hit, they're trying to die it in the hole. Maximum break, minimum speed. Okay. In that scenario, they should always have the flag sticking every time. Every time. Let's now skip and go to 10 feet and in and say we're with few exclusions. We're never dying the ball in there. We're, we're usually seeing that capture speed to where the ball would carry over the hole at some speed, some higher, some slower. Um, at that point, um, that's where the communication with the player comes in. I personally would still leave it in unless I'm going to make a choice to live on the higher spec, higher side of the speed spectrum for that putt. Um, I would purse the math would suggest we leave it in. So basically the slower, um, the slower, the speed with the most break, you're leaving it in every single time. You're leaving it in. Right. Right. So the short putts, this is where I have to deal with players individually. The visual piece of that flag stick being in the hole is big. It obviously takes up space in the hole. So there's some people that I, don't. I was going to say for me personally, I can't putt with the flag in because it mentally blocks me and makes me feel right. like I'm putting into a needle, you know? Yeah, so that's a real thing, right? So it's changed your target. The visual cues, how we acquire a target linearly and in, in all sorts of visual fa uh, fashions, it changes, right? So how a player deals with that is individual. The problem also is I'm looking at a, a target that is straight up and down on a putt that, you know, that's in line with where I want the ball to go that isn't really necessarily – in any line of where my ball is going to so travel. So do you, think, so you the, think the visual of the vertical straight line stick affects right. that too? I, I definitely think so. I definitely think players uh, that aren't, they don't have really clean routines that separate those pieces out. And that's something I work very hard with on my players is to mm -hmm. eliminate influence from things that, uh, that aren't real. Right. <laughs> but are real. Um, so I have to deal with that much. So I generally just tell players inside 10 feet, pull it out. Especially if they're, if they're good putters already, I don't want to bring in change. I say outside of 20 feet, you leave it in the middle ground there. 10 to 20 is where you're deciding, is it a dying in putt or is it not And a little bit of a personal preference right there? So that's sort of my, the answer I've been able to boil down over, over the last two years or so, or since that. That's and it's in. funny. Cause you hear people complaining about it, but it's like, dude, you're not obliged to keep the fucking stick in the hole. Like if don't you don't to. like it, if you don't like it, take it out. No one's forcing you to keep it in too. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it is. Exclusively a benefit. Um, if you again, make if the right, if you make the right mathematical decision for it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Um, sweet. So I want to talk about some wedge stuff. Um, just as a whole, if we can talk kind of generally, you know, you worked with some of the best players in the world. What What are some traits that you've seen, let's say, with your club golfer that you've dealt with? Um, you know, corporate people or recreationals uh, that make them just really bad wedge players as opposed to the tour players? Like, is there certain traits you pick up on that makes it, let's say, hard for distance control? Or, um, you know, there are certain things that they do that are, are always going to make it really hard to get consistent start lines or whatever? Yeah, so I, I see struggle from club golfer and tour player come from two different, two different directions, right? Uh, the club golfer, we'll start there. The club golfer, right, they don't play a lot. They don't practice a lot. Um, and so short game is something they never practice. Like if they've got 30 minutes to go practice, what are they going to do? They're going to go hit golf balls as hard as they can. Right? Okay. And more it, often than not, it's just a driver too. Is it, yeah, it is what it is, right? So there's very little uh, awareness and familiarity with slowing the golf ball down and, and playing wet shots. The problem is, 
Okay. Um, and I'm going to lead into poor instruction that I've seen uh, or sort of the, the world of poor instruction when it comes to short game. That club golfer that goes and now he has a 20 yard pitch shot. He realizes that he doesn't have to move a lot of parts to make that golf ball go 20 yards. So I see so many club golfers. It's exclusively arm for like shoulder, arm, wrist movement. Like this Exclusive. idea of like old school rock the shoulders, keep the wrists kind of locked in. Yeah. Well, no, no. So, so that's, we're going to leave that into the instruction, right? I think that's why the instruction went that way. If okay. I see a club golfer struggling, there's zero, basically torso rotation, very little action. It's exclusively this. Yeah. Like you know, hand, rigid, handsy motion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's where their, their issues mostly come from. So to fix that, obviously we try and reduce some of that, but the big piece that most mainstream in instruction misses is if that isn't going to move, something else has to. Right. So most of the time when a player is trying to get help, they'll develop the yips because, okay, I'm not supposed to move these a lot, but they don't want to move the big stuff very much. So now they get this small movement that they've got to try and create a lot of speed really quickly. in. That's spiking and acceleration profile. It's not the yips. It's spiking and acceleration profile on the grip and you have no control over your golf club. Yeah. So there's a technical issue there. <laughs> absolutely. Right. So we have to teach that player what is appropriate to move from shoulders out. And that the motor has got to be a little bit more of some torso uh, torso movement to control the large amount of speed. Um, and that's what I see. I think that's the, the road that these club golfers go down is they've recruited small stuff to move because they don't need a big movement. And it's exclusively what they do. But they don't understand that even in this 20-yard pitch shot, I mean, there can be 20, 30 degrees of torso rotation in this thing and backstroke to hit a nice soft little pitch shot where they're trying, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I'm trying to keep everything still and just kind of move the arms around. I was like, stop, because that's the problem. <laughs> that's the yeah, problem. you're making things worse. You know, I mean, I see that honestly, and, and that's just bad information. Bad. Lack of information would probably be in their world probably better. I've seen it on the PGA Tour as well. I'll share a story. Danny Lee, I've worked for Danny for years. First time I met him, uh leading up to that kind of segueing into into tour players um phenomenal ball striker guy's been a one the you know with the usam years when he was like 18 19 the guy's been a flusher for years okay he's at tpc sawgrass um and on friday he literally missed his golf ball chipping so that place is notorious before they changed the schedule when it was when the Bermuda was out, it was notorious for being super tight, super grainy, gave anybody that was struggling with chipping the heebie-jeebies. Well, his coach at the time, Drew Steckel, and I were having lunch on Saturday. And Dallas was the following uh, tournament at the time of the schedule. So we had lunch. He was like, hey, when you know you need to see Danny on Monday. I was like, well, we should talk to Danny and see if he – he goes, no, he doesn't have a choice. He missed a golf ball yesterday. So he doesn't have a choice. He's going to – as early as you can see him on Monday morning, he'll be there. Eight o'clock. By the chipping green I'm in Dallas. Okay, we meet him there. I watch him hit 15, 20 chip shots from literally six or seven feet off the green. He was 50 50 getting it on the green. And I'm talking to the from on the green, on the green. So I, I took some video and I'm watching him and I asked him, I said, Danny, what are you trying to do? And I'll, and I'll spare the details and, and the He described to a T what he was doing. And it was, he, awful, he, was clearly. Uh, he was doing what he had been told to do. I was like, well, you've got to stop immediately. That's, that's, the that's the problem, right? So there's your difference with your tour player. 
Um, they'll do whatever you tell them to do. That's the fun part. But you take a good ball striker. So where you see the struggle in wedge play from, from really good ball strikers, is, is that they're on the tour because they're good at speeding their golf ball up. They're good. They have a motion that's built around high ball speed, flush contact, hitting down on it, creating smaller spin loft, and great speed. Well, if they don't understand that the goal of chipping and pitching is to do the direct opposite. There's an inverse relationship they, there, basically. Then, then logically, they realize that they would have to admit that why they're successful hitting it, they have to do something very different. Wedging the golf ball can't be a small golf swing because you'd be bad at it. Would you, would, you, would you say, I want to continue this conversation, but would you say that's also why you see such opposing spectrums with some players where they're so good with their Absolutely. irons and off the tee and they're terrible with their wedge game or Absolutely. vice versa? Scott Stallings, uh, one, one of the guys that uh, that I worked with. Again, I worked for Scott for three, three and a half years. Um, he's one of the only people on the planet I've seen get a one five zero smash factor out of seven iron. So for <laughs> the tech guys out there, I mean, you'll understand. That's yeah, cra crazy shaft lean compression. like. Insane. It's saying, okay, so do you think he's good out of the bunker? Probably, ter <laughs> probably terrible. <laughs> right. So, I mean, he's one of, and he, he does, you know, he's a huge social media guy. He has the stingers and hitting those things, right? I mean, it's great. It's awesome. But as a professional golfer, obviously, to be able to do that, the other side of that spectrum, he didn't know it existed, right? So he was probably, I, I told him all the time, he probably gets, in my book, the most improved when there wasn't room, he couldn't improve doing what anything normal to him. He had no chance of getting better. So he was the case where you teach a guy how to slow the golf ball down a little bit, how to do some things that he can do. And there's a lot of pushback from a guy that's that successful. Right, the guy that's made a living on hitting the golf ball that well, he doesn't I mean, want to tour, play, tour players are fucking stubborn. Let's be realistic, right? So, so you've got you've got limited amount of room to move stuff. So you know, he went from I think the last year we worked together was his best year wedging it and putting it. I think he was maybe like 60th or 70th or something like that in, in strokes gained around the green, which is insane for a guy with that sort of shaft lean. So I always get the guys in, in terms of wedge play on the PGA Tour at a high level. They struggle because they're good golfers. They struggle because yeah, they have high struggle balls. around the greens because Brooks, they're so good with their Brooks, DJ, Woodland. You can name all the guys that move it fast. When they found somebody, I've worked with a handful of those to guys. Be, to be fair, Rory's not the best wedge player either. He's not right, and I have some. I have some in, some insight into some of the technology he uses and some of his understanding of what he's trying to do and not understand. Look, somebody could come into that team. That truly understood it. If he'd believe them again, we're talking tour players. Yeah, at the right? end of the day, it's all about if they choose to believe what you're telling and, them. And those guys, rightfully, rightfully so, should be very protective about who comes in where they get. I understand that, but the guys that move the golf ball that fast, they're at 100. As soon as someone helps them slow it down and sort of draw a hard line in the sand, it's like, hey, when we're over here in this world, imagine it. This is some stuff that's important. But when you go to the first tee box. You, you, none, you can't do any of it. You have to yeah. be able to get a player to separate those two things. I always talk about this one. You don't do anything with a putter in your hand like you do with a five iron. They're two totally different golf shots. We don't have any problem separating them with two totally different golf clubs. The same needs to be done for wedge play and hitting. That's the biggest thing I see at a high level. They don't separate those things out. I mean, you kind of even see that with the inverse side of it where like Luke Donald and Zach Johnson are two of the best wedge players ever. Yeah. 
and neither of them are great drivers of the ball. If we're being honest, no. Zach's, Zach's accurate. He's not long. Luke is right. all over the place, right? So it's, yeah. you know, you see that straight right away. Um, you were talking about bunker game then. So can you uh, um, allude a little bit more to what you like to see out of the bunker? Obviously, Shaffling is a problem. Is that a common trait that you deal with with tour players? Was that kind of more specific to Scott specifically? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I'll see, because I'll see both sides of that with guys, even at a high level that's strong. And I'll preface this with one reason I like the short game so much. And if we say short games kind of, you know, not full swings with wedges all the way in. Yeah, let's say like 80 or 90 yards and in or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max there. So I will, I love that world is because there's no physical limitation for anybody that plays golf uh, to have the exact same conversations that I have with PGA Tour players because speed's irrelevant. You can create enough speed to move your golf ball 40 yards. You can create enough speed to putt the golf ball 60 feet, right? So there's no limiting factor um to what's going on so i love this because the same thing i see in short game with some pga tour players you'll see with club golfers and vice versa so the world's very uniform which i i like and a lot of club golfers don't understand that they if they're bad at short game they can get help the same thing that helps the tour guys can help them but back to bunkers okay one of the things one of the things that has plagued short game instruction probably for the last four or five years because it became a, a buzzword or a hot topic for a while was shallowness Right. So the shallowness of, you know, what they they're trying to make a shallower angle of attack. It's still they, it's still a buzzword, by the way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Apparently I'm sure what I'm, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, people that just look at angle of attack don't understand how they're measuring that in the geometry of the rest of the arc of the golf club moving, especially when it's got to move through media before contact with the golf ball via the bunker play. Right. So these people that are that have at any point been told to be shallower in the bunker generally accomplish that through dysfunctional movements in the body via trail side bend without rotation, which means, yep, which means because they're trying to hit it higher, right? Just to a logical person that solves the problem. When it higher, well, I'll lean back to the right and I'll add some So wall. would you say that they're looking too much at the metric and not enough at how the metric is being created, basically? 100%. 100%. And I don't, I don't talk to a ton of people. Uh, I don't know how many people understand that, really understand that. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of them out there, but I would say when you're looking at an article in golf digest and it just says you got to shallow out to be a better bunker player, there's probably a lot of people that's damaged. Semantics uh, are super important when you're, it's banking. unbelievable. Right. So I see the guys, I see two sides of it. I see the guys that are high ball speed guys, um, from shaft lean, right. Obviously slowing the ball down via spin loft is there, is there tough part because they can't bring enough loft in, um, you know, a lot of the higher ball speed guys are steep guys. You know, I know for a fact, Brooks, you know, he's not a, he's not his game time driver. He's not afraid of four or five degrees down on that and more. I've seen plenty more. Before. I mean, we've, I've already uh, seen his track mat numbers of like seven, eight, nine down with irons sometimes. Like, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you're talking about seven iron be 10 down in a heart. No problem. Right? So, and, that, and that's part of what makes him functional with how far left he's got to go Yeah. because of some stuff he's trying to do in a swing. Right. That's another, that's, that's a totally different conversation. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, Gary, Gary Woodland's steep, you know, um, DJ's one of the few that's probably shot. I mean, that's why he's, he's pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, when they really dug into his wedges, he wasn't that hard. But he only, re he only remodeled that. And like after the open collapse, I guess, or some or somewhere around that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you look at the guys that are middle of the spectrum. Those guys are pretty good at everything. You can make some tweaks and you can teach them some shots. Like that's fine. But the guys that struggle, right. are the high ball speed guys, because, What's functional when I'm going to hit my ball first 
to change the geometry of what's functional in a bunker is it's a totally different world. They don't understand uh, the club that needs to be going past the grip and the bounce needs to hit the ground and it's nowhere near the ball, but some steepness is still positive. So it, it's a lot of things that uh, are, are very different than why they're successful. I, uh, I don't want to insult him personally, but I would love to talk about Phil Mickelson posting short game videos around the greens. Um, his method obviously is not very common, I would say, for what you'll see with a lot of really good players. Um, obviously, his skill level is there to support it. Can you talk about maybe some misconceptions about bounce as a whole on the wedge? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and just yeah. talk to what you've seen from him or from uh, some recreationals. The, the bounce the bounce is the easy one. That was short. We'll, we'll table the fill. And I'm going to lump him in with a lot of other players that have done the same because he's not, he's not the only guy. He doesn't deserve uh, too much criticism. Yeah. Um, so to, to bounce, okay, most of the time when you pick up a wedge and you look at it and there's a number on it and people are looking at, oh, well, I need a low bounce wedge. And they go grab one that says like the Vokey, for example, like the L grind lob wedge, like 60 degrees, four degrees of bounce. It doesn't have four degrees of bounce. It's got like 12. Okay, but it's it's short. It's it's in a narrow platform. So the number on that club isn't the isn't the number of bounce anyway. It's what they call an effective bounce, right? Right. Which which is irrelevant to anybody that's going to go try and pick out a wedge and not get fit for it. Doesn't matter. You can't look at that wedge and know what you irrelevant need. Irrelevant to these guys that are shooting 110 buying a new wedge, basically. Yeah, they what they need they need more bounce. They need a wider. So they need forgiveness, right? So they need they need forgiveness, which. You can lump people into different ways that they deliver the golf club into the ground and how you get them forgiveness. That'd be a personal fitting. That's how you figure that out. Right. Um, but the bounce stuff, um, very few players need little bounce. Uh, very few players. Very few players are going to play most of their wedge shots that are going to be greenside square-faced anyway. So we've got to really look at how that, that club operates and where the bounce is that is actually going to make contact with the ground and the shape of that sole. So the, the bounce question is a tough one uh, because there's no blanket answer. I'd say you're being lied to with the number on the club, one, right? So you're not, you can't even make a decision based on that. You probably don't know what shape the soles and the way that grind is supposed to be made is going to be good for you. So you're really going into buying a wedge. I don't know. You can literally take, a pack of wedges and blindly just go grab them, hit a couple of shots with each one of them and just start throwing ones out that don't feel right and end up with one or two choices. And you probably be doing a better job than trying to solve that with information on, on the internet. On the you're not going to talk to somebody directly. Right. Yeah. So that's the bounce conversation. I hand grind most of the stuff for my guys. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get a grind at my studio that, uh, that they like that we practice with, we tinker with, uh, you know, I'll grind several of them. We'll find some winners. Then I'll take them to the to the tour vans and their respective companies, whether it's, you know, whoever they're working with, I take it into their wedge guy. We'll, we'll match. Go, hey, we'll match do we have something that's really close to this in your stock stuff? Because that'd be great. So we don't have to hand grind them a bunch of times. Or if not, can you measure it and make a couple copies? So, you know, the balancing, especially at a high level, you want that thing to function in all sorts of different shots. Um, so we can get tricky, but, uh, for your club, most of your club golfers literally take five or six of the wedges that that manufacturer offers or different manufacturers, hit a bunch of shots, open the face up a little bit, hit some soft ones and just throw out the ones that you don't like the way they hit the ground and look at the three or four you got left. And you, you'll probably do yourself 
favors that way. Before um, we jump into uh, yeah. the, the tour players, I actually had a follow-up question to that of what, what would be your preference for guys on the ideas of like having one club that they're comfortable with and learning to hit multiple shots with it versus like same technique, you're grabbing a different club every single time. Is there usually one decision that's better or is that kind of, too, let's say you're dealing with the, the yeah. masses, the masses, obviously not the tour players. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say again, I'll, I'll, pre I'll, I'll go back to my statement earlier. I don't have to change the conversation for the two. I pick on Zach Johnson. Theoretically, he's one of the nicest guys. I'm not picking on him. Yeah. Um, but his skill set, right? His skill set of what makes him a good golfer, makes him competitive. He should never win a, a PGA Tour event, minus a couple of golf courses that are short, right? He's a multiple major champion, one of which being at Augusta that he never took a par five on in two. He did something really well, right? And, we, and, we, and you mentioned Luke Donalds, the two guys that I, I kind of I pick on right there. The guy made it to world number one, won both money lists in a year. I mean, it's insane. Insane, and he yeah. doesn't hit it long or straight, right? So he's really good at something. Those two guys are phenomenal examples of they are going to play pretty much every wedge shot one way until the situation says they can't. And I get 100%, I get every club golfer to find what their stock shot is, what their stock wedge is. It's generally between 54 and 58 degrees of, of loft. Right. Uh, I would say the same on the PGA Tour. Again, not much changes there. Um, and you become comfortable with a couple of things. One, the ball speed is going to be pretty consistent. Your smash factors are going to be pretty consistent. You get a particular flight. You get a particular spin. It's predictable. I was going to say that's the predictability has got to be way higher when you know what it's going to do. Predictable. I just need predictable. If I can guarantee things, then I can, then I can calculate risk. So that's all we're looking at. So I, I, 100%, you see more successful wedgers of the golf ball become more one-dimensional because there's a lot more guarantees, and a lot more predictability in that. And then the really good wedge players are really good at managing the variables that change when they need to change them and how they change them. So that's what I would say there. So yeah, a hundred percent, much more one-dimensional across the board. Amateur golfer, professional golfer. Right. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great answer. I mean, that's kind of what I was expecting too, because you see too many guys kind of show up to lessons and they're like, Oh, can I learn to hit a flop shot, but also a, a lower flighted pitch shot, but also you're like, dude, like you can't do any of these. You're trying to figure all of them out at the same time. <laughs> you're, you're mad at the stock one. So let's start. <laughs> yeah. Like what are you trying to, what are you trying to accomplish here? Can you, um, can you say one final comment just on how to deal with uh, a plug lie in the bunker? Do you have a preference on technique there? Cause you see some guys do kind of straight face steeper hack down yeah. and you see some guys kind of open face a little more kind of shallow. So where, where's your thoughts on that? There are, it's dependent on the surface underneath the ball. Okay. Good answer. So if I'm, if I'm plugged uh, and it's sort of softer sand and there's a little bit underneath of it, especially if there's any upslope, that's when you're going to get the club closed or towed in shaft vertical and you're going steep and you're going to basically wedge, wedge the wedge under the ball and like a chunk the pressure run kind of, yeah. kind of pushes it out. Well, for a situation where there's extremely firm surface underneath where that ball's sitting down, that's not successful. You bounce into it and you send it out. So we will play, uh, a shot there, and I, I'm trying to think if I've got videos of this on course things or, or not. Uh, I probably do. I did a lot of bunker stuff. But we'll play that in a situation where I'm going to go heel down and basically try and get the heel to to cut under and sort of heel cut this thing out. It's a higher level shot for most golfers. They don't necessarily use that unless the player is fairly skilled. You can still get it from a firm plug lie. You can still get it out playing at square face. 
but you it is possible to still hit higher softer uh, shots on a plug live. I mean, live. let's be realistic. The odds of success from a plug live from the beginning is already low. So. Right, right. Yeah, your, your par at that point has changed. So strategically, it's let's beat the par that's been created by my situation. So Good, good stuff. All right, enough of golf, dude. We've talked too much about golf as it is. <laughs> no, I want to hit the fill thing. I want to hit. Oh, yeah. Okay, go players. for it. Go for it. I want to yeah, talk yeah. about that because you get that a lot, right? And, and Phil's not to blame, right? Look, you go back to, to Nicholas when you're talking about golf swing stuff and you see articles these guys write, you see videos they even make. I even pick on, look, one of, one of the guys I think is the best of all time is Seve, you know, Seve, right? Uh, Jose Mario, Fawa, you know. Did those you ever guys see back. Seve hit balls in person, by the way? Not in person. I've seen okay. a ton of video. Right. And again, uh, and I think it was one of the things you want to talk about. My connection and we're talking, we're talking about coaching video, not just like a random, terrible Correct. speed thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pete Cowan, obviously he was playing at the time with those guys, uh, befriended a lot of them, got a lot of his information, a lot of his insight from some of those best, but Sebi, you know, you go through a lot of his highlights and you watch him hitting these bunker shots and shots out of the rough from just dead places. And then you look later on his career and he made an instructional video and at no point in his entire career has he ever done anything that he's <laughs> he said in his instructional. You think he's video, relating right? his feel to what he was trying to teach? Absolutely. So, so there is a 100% there's a disconnect between what a player and a great player will intuitively do and the reality of what they're doing, right? Right. Go back to when I was talking about Brooks and the putting and the stuff that I hide from. I don't need him to know what he's doing necessarily. I need him to know how to do what, what is – He's trying to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at Phil, and there's been other short games. James Ridger, who again, he's one of the best guys in wedge in terms of 3D information. That guy's that guy knows. I've literally seen him hit like a fried egg with a rake, and he got yeah. The the guy, the guy's it's a joke. It's a joke. The guy's insane. He he's probably uh, if I were going to lump people in, I'm going to quick aside and we back the conversation. Phil Kenyon fighting probably has more 3D data. Him and David Orr work together a lot. They've got 3D data. They're Unbelievable resources for putting. James Ridyard, in terms of data, probably number one on the planet in terms of actually having that organized. John Sinclair in Texas, in terms of full swing data capture, I think God knows how many tour players and winners he's got in his database. Those are your guys. If you want to ask questions about 3D stuff. Of like what is actually taking place. What's going, yeah, what's actually happening. Those are your guys, right? And, and James is unbelievable. Where I was going with that is when Phil put out some of these videos, he was like, well, you either have to play it off your back foot or your front foot. He made some outlandish statements. Yeah. And, of course, he gets crushed immediately by the instruction world that's active. <laughs> yeah. He just gets destroyed, right? And it's not necessarily warranted. They had to do it. James tore it apart left and right in a nice way. But it's like, you're wrong. You're just wrong. I mean, they have to right? protect the golf world, so they have to say things, right? Well, and, they, and they're validated, incorrectly validated. They're great players, right? They're great players. They're, he, Phil can hit shots that – you know, nobody else can hit. Yeah. Doesn't mean he knows how, right? He doesn't necessarily, when he's going to put that to words, he doesn't probably know what's going on. That's irrelevant to him. And it's cool to watch it on, on YouTube or wherever it is that they put yeah. that. But there's been, there's been players for decades that have done that. That's the danger. And that's where I'd warn golfers. That's the danger of, of taking technical instruction from former great players at its word. There's some guys that once they finish playing, they actually started to educate themselves and they understand some things and they they do know what's going on. It's not the majority of them. So just well, because dude, I played I've, at a high level. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I mean, I've interviewed a lot of like ex tour players, like Aaron Oberholzer and other guys, and they're yeah. all super Aaron's openly right. admitting like I was fucking clueless back then compared to no now. idea. Yeah, they had no idea. They were good. They were phenomenal. They were yeah. the greatest on the planet, but they didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, so that's the that's I get that all the time too. Just for all the golfers out there, ask the former players how they played golf, how they navigated golf courses, how they handled adversity, things of that nature the technical instruction you might want to leave to the people that do it every day. Well, I think uh, proof of that was also Ben Hogan. I mean, uh, if you read Ben Hogan's book, it's like, oh, my God. When he talks about his grip and stuff, I'm like, I couldn't see any of that shit in your full swing when you were playing. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and the problem is it, it's, it has validity because he is who he is. Right. Yeah, or yeah. was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, and that, now enough golf, right? Okay. Like, come on. We've, we've, had, we've, had an hour, we've had an hour of this stuff. It's enough. Um, first of all, I mean, you saw the bar next to me, so we have to mention yeah. some boo stuff. Yeah. First, first time I meet Jeff Pierce in oh, Vegas, God. I don't know, four years ago. I can't remember. Four years ago, I guess for. It uh, is four. Yeah. It was like it was like a December. It was like yeah, December of seven, seventeen or eighteen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we're doing some Instagram or Facebook lives, I guess, at the time, and a bunch of stuff preparing for Course Kings. And all I remember is Jeff's like. Yeah, I feel like having a bourbon. It's like the afternoon. Like, fuck that. All right. I'm down. I'm, I'm on vacation. I, I do it. And all I remember is like we're in the middle of the Facebook Live, and I remember you like sending a note to my brother across the table and being like, can you go get me another fucking drink? Because I am thirsty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had done. I remember. So that's – yeah, that was – that was a lot. We were nearing the end of a long day. So we did – we did a film. We filmed for like two straight days. We yeah. were or, Yeah, two or three days. We filmed. I did some teaching between that. You know, Jeff and Joe had some guys for us to teach. So, I mean, we busted our ass for like two days. And the back end of this was the second afternoon. Uh, and, of course, it was like the sun's going out in Vegas. Like the sun's going down at like 5 o'clock. We're getting our stuff together. And we're doing, of course, King's Facebook Live. I'm like, look, I'm busting my ass for two days. I'm in <laughs> Vegas. Like, I'm going to have a cocktail on this on this deal here because there's four other coaches. Like, I can, I can go for two hours. And First of all, the best part is I went back and rewatched some of the clips. Like, we're hysterical on that video. Like, you can very clearly tell that, like, our focus is going downhill a little bit and we're getting a little inebriated as the day is going on. <laughs> And I'm just like, I remember them asking me a question at one point, and I'm like, well, let's ask Jeff, because he's been drinking for the last two hours. I kind of want to see what he has to say to this. Yeah, you got me on that one. <laughs> oh, shit. Do you have a preference for drinks? Is it bourbon? bourbon or just? Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. you're a Kentucky guy, I guess. Kentucky, kind of yeah, they, yeah you, you get kicked out. They don't let you back in if you drink much else. So. Do you have a favorite that you've been, like, riding? Yeah, I, I've, I've got a lot of... I collect a lot of uh, higher-end stuff, and by collect, I mean, I keep it for a little while, and then... Then I'm drinking it. it at some point. Yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, my go-to is Woodford Reserves, a staple. That's um, always in there. Some of the old Forester stuff, their Statesman, and some of the you know, there's some great bottles in the forty, fifty dollar range. Um, and look, after you have the first couple of fingers, you know, it, it doesn't matter. At that point, anymore. it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if actually I don't know if you know this. I actually worked for the government for for selling booze for like six years before jumping into the golf world. That's literally my old career. In Canada? They have Canada. alcohol up there? Yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah. That was actually my career before jumping into the golf world. So it's funny. Whenever I hear people talking about alcohol now, I feel like everyone around me just kind of stares at me and goes, so, Shine, what are your thoughts on this? Because you used to sell this shit. I'm like, I didn't try everything, but, you know. I can't. I, I mean, I'm a, I guess I'm a bourbon guy, but I can't do dark for too long. I feel like it always gives me a hangover the next day. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I'm a clear yeah, drink guy. Drink more. Man. You got to build your tolerance up. Are you kidding me? Ask Brandon how much I'm touching these things. Every single day I'm coming in and I'm like, ah, fuck it. Let's have a drink. You know, as long as I'm, 
I, yeah, I was I was talking the other day, and quarantine got us all. I think everybody probably drank more in 2020 than they have in their entire life. You're at home, it's 2 o'clock, and you're like, well. Nothing else better than Nothing else yeah. going on today. I'm, I'm looking at my schedule. I'm like, all right, so all my FaceTime sessions are done, so I guess it's time to hit the bar. My girlfriend's just staring at me like, are you serious? Like, yeah, fuck that. What else am I going to do right now? <laughs> Not that I want to promote, you know, being an alcoholic, but just to – just to say yeah yeah uh, all disclaimers we're not telling anyone to drink ever <laughs> uh, okay one last uh thing i like to ask everybody I, i've been on with you for almost two hours with the conversation we had before jumping on this but um i guess i always ask people what their fantasy foursome would be and i would imagine that yours would have no golfers in it because probably i Ooh. mean you don't have to choose golfers let's be realistic here you can choose whoever you want to actually be part of it Ooh, that's a good one um Man, give me a second. I'll, I'm going to come up with think, some, some. Think about stuff. it, man. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Fantasy four. Well, there's not a lot of people that I want to spend four hours with. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I was talking to uh, like a hockey analyst last week, and I had asked him that question, and then he, and then I'm like, oh, so no hockey players? It's like, dude, I do this for a living. You think I want to spend more time around these people? Like, I totally get it too. Because when people ask me, I'm like, yeah, I guess like Tiger's the cheap, easy answer because I've never actually been a part of a group with him. But beyond that, like I wouldn't want to spend four hours with another golfer. Like, I yeah, golf, golfers, it's it's golf. It's, I could, you're great at doing the thing we're gonna do. I don't, I, I might skip five or six holes in a round of golf, right? I'm not, I'm not yeah. that interested. Oh, first of all, I remember you posting a video like a year ago in our group, our Course Kings group chat, and you're like, all right, I can still play. Fuck it, I, I'm done. Like, I played three holes this week. I know I can still yeah. swing the club. I don't. No, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story to tell you how much golf I I I play. Like big golf, what I call big golf, right? Uh, you know t-box and drivers and all that stuff i don't <laughs> like not a random wedge at some point like an actual yeah, yeah so i've got i'm really fortunate the facility at my club's outstanding i have a great owner we built uh it's a little over 15 acres of a par three course i've got a it's like twenty eight thousand square foot putting green uh behind there i've got 15 acres of short game fun with an official part huge greens legitimate greens par three golf course is unreal uh, our golf course our big golf course is hard Right. And I don't practice. <laughs> so I don't go to the big golf course. Yeah. But I've so, seen your short game, even if you're hitting it all over the place, I can't imagine yeah. you're scoring that bad. Right. So yeah, I, I played, I played two full rounds of golf in 2020 and I broke par both times. Um, so I, I, I still figure it out. I play pretty conservatively off the tee and then getting into the hole is not a problem, but in 2020, so I came back in 2019, I was down in Florida uh, for the winter. I come back up, I've got my golf clubs. They go in my garage. Uh, my golf bag did not make it to my golf club, golf course in 2020. Okay, my club stayed in my garage. When I went to play the the, the par three course, I'd just take wedges out of like the Vokey fitting bag or whatever, grab some balls and go play it. Well, I got down to Florida uh, in December. Uh, week right before Christmas. Right, yeah, past year. right. So 20, yeah, the week before this past Christmas. Buddy of mine was staying with me for a couple of days. He's like, hey, let's go hit some golf balls. I'm like, all right, I'm in Florida on vacation. I'll go whack a few golf balls. We go to the golf course nearby. Bags on the cart. I'm thinking, all right, hit some warm up. I grab my wedge, my seven iron, and my driver, because that's my sort of my normal just warm-up, warm-up routine. routine. Yeah. Pull the head cover off the driver, and it's just a shaft. I don't I don't actually have a driver <laughs> in there. Um, yeah, I was missing a wedge and I didn't have a three iron. So we went and played 18 holes. I played with three wood and four iron down missing a sandwich. So it's like that. That's how much I pay attention to my golf. Like I don't, I could care less about golf. Like the yeah, only reason you, you work, you work in it. Play. It's understandable. 
Yeah. yeah it's, I, and I, look, I played in college. I played after college. And it's just the passions change. Going to the first tee box and finishing on hole 18 interests me zero. Now, if you want to go put the golf ball in the worst place possible and have fun, absolutely. Let, let's go do that. Like, let's let's go figure out some cool stuff. I mean, but, uh, to be honest, I just had that conversation with my brother a couple of months ago where it's like, even me, the the fire to want to put a number together is just not there. I just, don't I, care. I just really like hitting fun shots and having yeah. a good time with everyone, you know? Yeah, you don't care. All right, so so my foursome. Foursome, right? yeah. I'm going to go foursome. I'm going George Washington. Wow, he's – all right, all right, intense. That guy's badass. So you're telling me that guy's not badass. <laughs> well, right? maybe the most famous American of all time. Yeah, he got to be up there. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta check him out. Um, I, I, I love presidents. I love the history of America. First of all, I wonder if, if he, like, he's, he's got to not have any idea what golf. None, which is gonna be the great part. Yeah, right, because he's not gonna play either. We're gonna <laughs> run around the golf cart. <laughs> he's he's gonna be car. fucking around, and being like, "What is this electric cart I'm able to drive around?" <laughs> so, so he's in there. Um, Elvis, he's got to have some stories. So I want, I, yeah, I mean, probably the coolest president, maybe one of the best entertainers ever. And then, uh, man, and I just, I just, I don't know. That's a tough one. I definitely know golfers. First of all, definitely. I'll say, I'll, I'll, yeah, that's for sure. I'll say this. You're the first person who struggles to answer the question, which speaks to your level of how often you play golf as a starting point. <laughs> And it also speaks to how much you like being so off the grid that you don't even have an answer of three people you can name that you would want to spend four hours with. It'd be, yeah, I know it's bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not, maybe that's why golf digest doesn't like me. I don't have a good answer. <laughs> people that are listening to this are going, well, that's why this fucking guy's not on the damn list. <laughs> I would, I'd take him and Chris Kyle. There'd be, there'd be my fourth. Chris Kyle is the American sniper for those who probably seen the movie or read the book. Right. So I love the military. I do. I do a ton with those guys. I, I give back. The special forces guys are, are pretty cool guys. Uh, if you think about all, all three of those people, the only people that I'm really interested in talking to are the people that are um, literally the best that have ever lived at what they do. Right. I'm, because there's regardless of and that's why golf, I, I've, I've fortunately been around the best golfers that have ever lived. Right. I've gotten to do yeah. that. And they're cool. Right. They're awesome. And you take away not from golf, but you take away from their personalities and their thoughts on things and how they organize stuff. And there is, there is, it is uniform. Everybody that is that special at something. They all have the um, same way of going about. You can, yeah, you, you learn different things from them, from their experiences, but then you just continue to reinforce why they're special. So I like, I like people like that. People that are, that are, uh, you know. Well, I mean, it's not literally to say the number one in every different category of different things you're interested in. So (laughs) good. It's a good answer. I mean, it's better than choosing some rando, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. (laughs) Good shit. Good shit, dude. Man, that was fun. Thanks again to all of the wonderful sponsors of our show. Callaway Golf, Trackman, Aerotech Golf Shafts, and Superspeed Golf. And remember, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther, all you got to do is head over to superspeedgolf.com and use the code SKEEN for 10% off your order. That's S-H-K-E-E-N for 10% off your order at superspeedgolf.com. Come